Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 301st episode of MDG Fast Finance, the podcast that's blasting off to uninfinity and beyond in the nicest possible way. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen at Wizard Bumpin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? Well, this week is going to be pretty familiar. Uh, segment one, our MTGO metagame week in review. Segment two, our top paper movers, the cards that have moved in price the most this week, along with some quick cards from MTGO. Segment three, our cards to watch, a pretty full slate this week. And segment four, our weekly topics, we are a little backed up because we had to stop and take a, a big celebratory episode last week. But this week we have both Unfinity and Alchemy to uh get into so let's uh let's get started here right at the top we've got a modern challenge here on december 4th uh taken down by grix's death shadow and then an amulet titan in second place that has another uh, cultivator colossus which is the i think second time we've seen that in the last two weeks uh wasn't anticipating seeing that card here but you know multiple times here in back-to-back weeks means that's probably going to earn uh, at least a Seemingly permanent slot is maybe one of in this deck. Oh, and then the sideboard too, apparently. I mean, it's been anything from a one to a four of. We saw it win uh, uh, or top eight two weeks ago, I believe it was, with four copies in the deck. If I'm not mistaken, let me just double check what that result looked like. Uh, maybe it was just last week. Uh, the, set, the set hasn't been out long enough to have been in more weeks, has it? Didn't Val only land on Moto like no, I don't. a week and a half I, ago? I, it may have been in some other tournament or it was at Vegas. Um, but anyway, Cultivator Colossus is in the conversation to earn slots in Amulet Titan. Last week we looked at a version that was running four Karn the Great Creator instead of Colossus, any Colossus. Um, so I think that is still up in the air, uh, but it's the card is certainly being floated uh, to earn those slots. What I've told the pro traders on this card is I think I'm a seller here. This card has floated plenty high along with some of the other key mythics in Vow, And to my eyes, it looks like you're supposed to be selling in advance of any additional inventory entering the market. Yeah, I mean, any you know, anytime you've got a brand new card here that's got doing pretty well like this, you're probably better off getting out of it because it's more likely that it drops than it climbs, right? TCG markets at 20 bucks on the regular copies on this. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty high for a right for they're just a normal regular everyday pack copy. That's high. And then extended arts are at thirty, 
with some copies drifting down into the low 20s now. And I could easily see any kind of mass cracking operation pulling both of those prices further down. Now, in the long term, I think this is a really strong EDH card, whether or not it shows up in, in modern on a regular basis. So it's, it's still got some legs as a spec, but I don't think it's... Uh, I'm not super comfortable getting in at this this particular set of prices. Yeah, where it goes in the future is a valid question, but it's definitely something I think that you you bounce from now and then maybe you come back to down the road. So yeah, we had Grixis Death Shadow win this challenge. It also won the other challenge. So Death Shadow should be back on people's radar for sure. Um, you got Amulet Titan second, as we said, Blue White Control in third, New Jund in fourth, meaning it's got a bunch of MH2 cards in it. Um, although this this Jund list looked like it was a little bit more of a blend between old and new, since they do have the four Liliana of the Veil alongside four Renin Six. They are running Bonecrusher Giants alongside Tarmogoyce. They've got Ragavans, but they've still got the the typical sorcery and instant speed interaction package. And then, of course, they're running four Urza Saga, which is kind of a hallmark of the newer Jund build. So it looks like we're getting we're finding some kind of middle ground where we're just seeing a hybrid version of Jund emerge that takes the old and new ideas and uses the best of each. Yeah, and given that Jund has always been a good stuff deck, it's going. It's never going to have a settled deck list. You'll see adjustments on a weekly basis of a couple cards here and there because that's you know based on what's good in the meta and whatever the pilot wants to run. So it's not mm-hmm. going to be like you know Amulet Titan or Hammer Time, which tend to um, format rele- or new set releases aside tend to be pretty tight on their lists. Jund is always going to be flexible. I mean, there's certainly lists like Merfolk that are like yeah, super fa- tight, fa- fairly static and and hard to shift slots around in. I think Hammer Time's a little bit of a worse example just because we've seen black, white, and red, white Hammer Times. Um, over the last few months, but your point still stands. Um, four color Yorion Omnath in fifth the deck. I don't think that deck's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, sixth is Hammer Time aforementioned. Uh, this in this case a pretty straightforward mono white version. Uh, then we've got humans showing up again, and this was noted last week because we saw them in eighth place in the challenge on november 28th and in this case we see it in seventh so we haven't seen a top finish but they're certainly you know on the hunt to get into trophy position here what this time human of day stack... are they on the hunt <laughs> well midnight probably okay the it's a good time to do it they, they they are still running three adeline uh adeline i'm gonna go with resplendent cathar that's the x4 that we talked about last week um out of midnight hunt so that's a pretty straightforward humans list. I can accept that this is here in the top eight. We'll talk about the more interesting humans list in a minute. Uh, this top eight on the, from the challenge on the fourth was wrapped up by blue white, another blue white control deck. Now, as we said, Grixis Death Shadow was in, uh, in at the top of the heap on both the Saturday and the Sunday this weekend. Blue Black Mill was in second on the fifth. New Jund again in third. Blue Red Merktite in fourth. A rare appearance of Bant Spirits showing up in fifth place and not a whole lot going on in that deck that you wouldn't recognize from a few years ago it's like other vials collected companies and 32 spirits basically i guess noble hierarch uh not i guess that's always been in the bant version of spirits because they they want the mana they want the mana acceleration to get to collected companies so that's not really new i guess the newest thing here is spellclave skyclave apparition which was printed this time last year in zendikar rising 
uh, at a time when Spirits was basically absent in the meta. So I think we mentioned at the time that, hey, maybe this will help Spirits, and apparently it has. Uh, then we had Blue-White Control in 6, Grixis Death Shadow again in 7, so that's three appearances out of the, the two top eights. And now we come to one of the wildest decks that we have seen on this cast all year. <laughs> 80 card Yorion Humans? What the actual fuck? This is 45 creatures, one one single copy. You're, you've got 80 cards and you still only wanted one slot for Teferi Time Raveler. So you want it to show up once per tournament, apparently. That, four, even that's pushing it. <laughs> four Lightning Bolt, four Ether Vial. The creature suite is mostly humans, not all. Four Adeline again, four Champion of the Parish, two Charming Prince, one Deputy of Detention, which is not a human. Three Esper Sentinel all, uh, is a human. Uh, four Imperial Recruiter, one Magus of the Moon, one Malevolent Hermit. This is the standard, mostly the, the human wizard uh, that can counter non-creature spells and then has a Disturb cost that you mostly see in standard. Four Meddling Mage, two Phantasmal Image, four Ragavan, also not a human, but too good to leave out, I suppose, in a, in a creature deck these days. Four Reflector Mage, one Sanctifier on Vec, one Snapcaster Mage. Very notable for the fact that Snapcaster has exactly four targets here that could possibly be in your graveyard pre-sideboard. Just the four Lightning Bolts. Uh, four Thalia Garden, Guardian of Thraben, four Thalia's Lieutenant, and one Welcoming Vampire. Top aiding in Modern. There's a, a couple things I catch here. The first is that the Wizards website still doesn't have a button to flip over cards with a backside. Mm-hmm. So, uh, great job, team. I have no idea what the backside of Love Want Hermit does, and I refuse to go to another website to find out. Uh, second, <clears throat> their land count is 26, which is like two more than you would play in a 60-card deck. <laughs> So if you go from 60 to 80 cards, you have increased your deck size by 33%, which means you would expect your land count to go up by 33%. So you'd expect around like 30-ish lands here at least, but instead the dude just threw in like one. You'd also expect that in a deck where you're leaning on Ether Vile to be your key uh, advantage in matches where you're favored, where you are able to cast and pseudo cast two creatures per turn and overwhelm the defenses of your uh, of your opponent that you would definitely want to be making sure you're drawing an ether vial more frequently well he can't play five uh <laughs> well but, but this is just like how did they get to wanting 80 cards in this deck i i suppose this is I, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that this person has played Yorion before. He's played other Yorion decks and was probably really struck by how good Yorion was and ultimately decided that he wanted to basically give this a shot. And lo and behold. Yeah, basically said, look, there are just so many good humans that I'm just gonna try this and see if I can get away with it, basically. Like and more to the point, and more to the point, a preponderance of humans with comes into play abilities where Yorion can leverage what they do. Yeah. 
and not just humans but there's lots of even the ones that are not humans tend to benefit from that so like deputy of detention getting reset charming prince champion of the parish imperial recruiter uh meddling mage getting to reset phantasmal image ditto etc etc um this is a wild wild deck and picture being sitting across from someone at a major paper modern tournament and they reveal yorion at the start of the match as one does these days and you're like ah i've got a game plan for omnath and then they're like, turn one play is Ether Vile, they're turned to, or like Esper Sentinel into Ether Vile, drop a two drop. Next turn they cast a Welcoming Vampire, and you're like, what the hell am I playing against? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think this is probably just Yorion has been so good for them in the past that they played it anyways. Uh, they just said, what the hell? Like, this, this card overperforms, and also there are just so many good humans that it doesn't matter if I'm playing, you know, this 80-card version because I, it doesn't matter which humans I draw. They're all good. And I get the I get some other bonuses here. With so. 45 creatures in an 80-card deck, you know, something like three to four creatures per opening hand, and then if you're lucky, you get a Bolt or a Vial or a Time Raveler and a couple of lands, and you're good to go. Anyway, um, when, when there's an interesting deck on this portion of our spreadsheet, I mark it in yellow. I mark this one in orange because it's like alert, alert, alert. You have to um, say, you've never used that color to yeah. indicate a deck before. So, And I don't expect to again because I don't think we'll see this list again. So, so, yeah, you really got to uh, put up quite a list to get your to, <laughs> to get, get the orange to get the orange yeah that's uh that should be let, let that stand as a, a goal for all of you brewers out there the next one will be like turtle tribal or something sure would that even get one would that be enough? yeah yeah if you top eight with turtle tribal then you're you're probably getting in there okay i'm gonna keep that in mind uh all right so moving on to top paper movers of the week we got turok dread cantor out of mh2 just regular copies going from 450 to 550 not a huge amount of gains but this is one of those cards that you're probably going to see slowly slip up over time and those are the kinds of cards that we will tend to miss in our analysis given the way that we structure it so you know keep your eye on that continuing play in the black red modern decks and the and uh the esper and mardu variants that are running around and if it continues to see that play, you're probably going to see it creep on up to 10 bucks by next summer would be my guess. Yeah, and I feel like we commented last week. Uh, did you pick this? Did somebody pick this recently? I, I feel like maybe we we called out Borderless at some point this fall. Let me... Seems like there's a couple. Yeah, there's there's definitely some options here for how to approach this card. And I don't, I don't hate any of them. Uh, I don't remember if any of them are really like oh yeah this is an amazing pick at the moment but uh um, yeah i said foil borderless was at six dollars oh yeah 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 that's really two weeks two weeks ago yeah and now it's at let's take a look it is at well there are three copies listed under 10 and then you're looking at a ramp headed to 15 plus. So it looks like that one's probably going to be a win. Yeah. And that's not surprising at all. And just like every version of this card is probably going to do well, given a long enough period of time here. Yeah. You're down, you're down to just 16 listings. And when we were talking about it on cast, it was like double or triple that. Well, yeah, double to two and a half times that. Yeah. 
So draining hard. So a card at the card at the, for your if you want it personally at the very worth keeping an eye out for. Moving on to Grim Hireling out of the uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms Commander decks, ten to fifteen dollars, fifty percent gains. But all versions of this card have been on the move. It was one of my selections a ways back as well. No, yeah, mine. Uh, so we did talk extended about it. Extended arts to go four to twelve. That's also a win already. Yeah, that was back. That was back on episode two ninety six, November second, and all versions of the card have moved since then. Hunted Phantasm is, I think, uh, Jason's fault. Uh, people were, <laughs> I don't know if you caught this, but there was uh, a complaint floating around uh, where I think they somebody complained to MTG Stocks that too many of their hot movers of the week were. A result of things discussed on Brainstorm Brewery, and they were trying to like, like connect the dots, like deep throat, and, and prove that there's like this big like, conspiracy going on. And uh, Jason's response was pure Jason. So yeah, Hunted uh, Phantasm is a Toxtral thing because Toxtral's blue black based on his text box ability. So you can run things like Hunted Horror and Hunted Phantasm, and then get really undercosted creatures. And your opponents don't get nearly the benefit they were expecting. Soren Markov out of Mythic Edition 2. This was uh, Ravnica Allegiance, I think. Uh, $50, for, $50 for these foils like a week or two ago. Now they're up to about $85. That's definitely like Soren slash vampire hype cycle side effects kind of thing to my mind. Yeah, I also that's the type of card that I kind of wonder if people are actually buying that or well that sounds like a weird way to put that if the people buying the card are spectators or uh, speculators or not um it just i i don't know are the people who are building vampires going out and buying that card all of a sudden i suppose if they're going to now's the time to do it but if you're trying to spec on vampire cards that you haven't already missed the boat on this seems like the type of card you go oh you know what there was that one soren let's go grab that one Worth noting that this has only ever appeared in Zendikar Magic 2012 in terms of booster packs and then the Mythic Edition version. So it's the one fancy version. The art's good. Uh, Soren the Mirthless is, of course, a hot topic du jour in the MTG Finance community. One of our pro traders managed to purchase, I think they said it was eBay, uh, a Soren the Mirthless foil expecting to get a collector booster version that would have been worth whatever 225 i think is the tcg near mint low right now buy list in japan's at thirty thousand yen so slightly under 300 dollars. and as predicted somebody had to pull pull the long straw and they managed to get a set booster produced copy which buy lists for closer to 550 in japan yeah so that's very nice for them so, so that guy's buying us lunch <laughs> Well, I mean, he did it. He did it all on his own, but certainly uh, the discussion in the pro- the Discord probably pushed him in the right direction. Uh, bottom line, with all the Soren discussion going around, um, not super surprised to see this moving. There's literally six copies left from a single vendor at ninety bucks a piece, and that could be somebody who bought up cheaper copies and is now reselling them. Certainly, but bottom line, how are you going to restock this card? Right. How many of these? How many of these are even face like market facing, in the sense that they are 
in the hands of somebody who has any chance of by listening them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to get more, you have to crack Mythic Editions, essentially. One of the things to think about when you're trying to figure out which specs to prioritize is considering the num- the number of copies of the card in question that are likely to hit vendor hands before they hit consumer hands and what percentage of the total inventory will go enter the market that way and will it all land at the same time and when you have something like older secret layers before vendors stopped snubbing them and decided to get in on the action or things like mythic edition where vendors didn't have easy access to them because they were again competing with everybody else online and the whole sales process was a bit of a clusterfuck um these are the kinds of things that once they drain out the the most excited to purchase person sets the price by keeping that drain in check right like they're going to post somebody post one maybe two copies to tcg per week from here on out and that's might be pushing it so this is anywhere from a 70 to 200 hundred dollar card depending on who you're who's selling and who's buying mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so I, you're also starting to go ahead i would just say it's 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 not the type of card oh i'm gonna sneeze ah keep it wet it's um i don't know now i forgot what i was gonna say whatever <laughs> <laughs> damn sneeze uh we're starting to see these kamigawa related specs filter in you saw tidbits of it as early as midsummer and you're seeing things like kira great glass spinner out of betrayers of kamigawa foils going from 35 to 60 70 percent gains oyobi who split the heavens a card nobody's ever played going from 12 to 28 uh a kamigawa spirits related spec that stuff doesn't get me super excited i it's the kind of thing where if you can get them super cheap and early on in the hype cycle and you can you put aside one or two copies you'll probably do fine like somewhere within the three months of the kamigawa hype cycle you will likely be able to exit uh probably make your choices based on the stuff that's actually going to matter uh for instance further up this list just to finish the thought we have isao probably butchering the name i-s-a-o enlightened bushi which is a samurai but in green from uh, Betrayers of Kamigawa. And the foils for that went from 40 to 100. There's hardly any left. And I guess the, the play here is that it regenerates other samurai and people are assuming there will be samurai in Kamigawa. The question, though, is will there be green samurai in Kamigawa? Because if they go back to that well and add to the green samurai, then yeah. And probably more importantly, if they give you a salt as a result of that, design choice they give you a salty samurai commander but the thing is weren't most of the samurai white and red without having looked i'm gonna guess white red and black yeah really there was do- there was there was some black that's right really doesn't feel like a greener white or a greener uh blue blue yeah so not super excited about that one but again, probably the kind of thing where if you had a single copy sitting around either in your binder from before or as a kind of a loose spec, yeah, you'll probably get out on it if they re- reveal some hot samurai. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about a couple of them so far. Um, 
because I and I I respect what they're that some of the Kamigawa specs could work out and my you know my whole intent is like well you know you can grab these now well before the cycle starts um, and hope to be one of the first sellers as people start hitting TCG to, to buy up in re- regards to the spoilers. Um, but I, but you know, you really have to be way out of the game, getting the dirt cheap copies, um, and you don't want to go super deep because how many people are going to buy foil Asaos at, uh, you know, seventy dollars, right? Like they're just not going to be that much of a market for that. And as we've seen with all of the action around the Innistrad sets this fall, the zombies and vampires and spirits and whatever, the werewolves. Uh, the cards you typically want to go after are either the fanciest versions of auto-includes in the decks or, likewise, regular or any version of a card that doesn't see a reprint in a regular uh, regular frame, non-foil, in the co- associated commander decks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you have a, a werewolf they don't reprint that's going to be in every werewolf deck, that, you know, the, even basic versions of that card are going to sell very well for you, and they could will do so repeatedly i've sold i don't know 12 or 14 uh of geez i have it on my desk right here what is it called uh dust watch recruiter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was a dead spec from like june of 2017 that has now been redeemed um the slow and painful way <laughs> so anyway be, be careful what you're what you're committing to, and uh, try to focus on the stuff that makes the most sense. We've got Mephidros Vampire here at a fifth dawn. Foils going from twenty five to sixty. This one's interesting as a kind of curveball on the vampire hype cycle because Mephidros Vampire turns all your creatures into vampires, so you can play it in a mixed deck if that is of of if there are some some interesting combo pieces that you're throwing into your deck that are not going to generate vampires by nature, but would be much better if they did, then you could throw this into your four, five, six, seven drop vampire slots of which you might have four or five in the deck and uh, do something cute with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, that's nifty. I, uh, I had kind of forgotten about this card and then I saw it on the list. I was like, oh yeah, I remember Mephidros Vampire. Oh, what does that card do again? <laughs> remember the name. Uh, this next one, Blink Moth Infusion. I remember the card. It's untap all artifacts, and it has affinity for artifacts, and it costs 14 otherwise. Uh, it's only in 1,000 reported EDH rec decks, but it's in 10% of all Yuriko the Tiger Shadow decks. So I suppose this is people thinking that this is going to see additional play on the basis that Yuriko is going to get more ninjas to fool around with. Yuriko is already a popular commander. If we look at the top commanders of the last uh, two years, Yuriko is number four, 6,200 decks uh, reported on EDH rec. And if we're looking at top commanders past month, Yuriko is number six. So a very popular top 10 commander and anything that's going to be, have a chance of getting included there that, like this card has only been printed the one time, has a pr- pretty decent shot of finding a home in somebody's shopping cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an odd card and not not like terribly popular. But I mean, you're talking about fifth dawn, so there's not a lot of copies out there. Uh, no reprints, right? So, I mean, I guess Isao kind of falls into roughly the same boat. You just need one person to buy it. But even still, I don't know how eager I am to to chase that i'm not going to chase let me put it that way 
There isn't like anything that jumps out at me about this card being specific to Yuriko. I guess you have to be building a, a, a brew that cares about artifacts, which is not something that... Oh, oh, wait, I get it. Real be the top card of your library. Oh, each opponent loses life. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yuriko cares about casting costs, and this costs 14. <laughs> so if you flip this off the top with Yuriko, the whole table takes 14 but you. <laughs> oh, they're I looking see. for the most expensive card that they yeah. can find. And it's yeah, it's got nothing to do with the artifacts energies at all. Because I was like, I was like, all the other commanders that play this card are like Urza and Brutaclad and Joyra and Brea. Like these are decks that actually have artifacts in them. And I was like, is there some kind of like token thing? Nah, it's just about fourteen casting cost. Got it. This is what happens when you uh, don't play the commander, or like you know, you haven't encountered it in your local play group. These cards that make a a lot of sense once it's been you take a moment to think about why they're there. That this is one of those cards. obvious. This is one of those cards where you really want to have a lot of uh, top of deck selection going on. Your mm-hmm. brainstorms and your ponders and whatever. Because you don't want to draw this card in any circumstance other than the Yuriko trigger. If you were, if there's ever a deck that wanted Sensei's Divining Top, this is it. Yeah. So finishing this up, we got Infernal Genesis, which I believe is also Jason's fault. Four to twelve dollars. I don't know if you wrote about it for us or elsewise, but uh, uh, then we had an Umbu- Unburial rights, unburial, no, unburial rights uh, out of Innistrad foils burial? for two fifty, like the un, animal un, bear, unburial, unburial rights. I know I've said it a thousand times before, but apparently not tonight. Umbriel uh, Rites. Yeah, two fifty to ten dollars, three hundred percent gains. This is modern Esper reanimator decks running around in modern and black white versions and black blue versions that I've seen, and somebody I'm sure has tried black red. And Unburial Rights hasn't had, uh, well, this is the original printing. Uh, I think there are uh, younger printings. I'm trying to think when the last time we saw this card was. I guess I'll just look it up. Uh, they'll probably be dirt cheap. Uh, it gets printed in Commander decks pretty often. It was in the list. And Ultimate Masters and Modern Masters 2017. And if we look at Unburial Rights foils from Ultimate Masters, you're talking like Five listings left. So they're drying up in the other printings as well. Uh, if you want to build that deck, you should probably snap those off if you're building in foil. Yeah, it's taken a long time to get here. Uh, I don't... I, I'm Like, if you want one, buy it. I wouldn't bother. It feels like the type of card, again, you can just... It's just gone so long without a foil reprint of any sort. I'd rather just buy the cheapest version and then just wait patiently. Intel. Kind of card that can show easily show up in Secret Layer. Kind of card that makes sense to show up in Double Masters 2 because it brings Creature back twice. Um, There's just plenty of places that it can find a home. And I don't want yeah. And like $10 for a foil that's like medium popular is like, eh, why not just wait until it shows up again? It's not like we're talking about, you know, Risk Study or Brainstorm or something that's yeah. really popular on Common where the, the price is going to be resilient. Agreed. All right, so that's the top paper movers over on Magic Online. Uh, Croxa, Titan of Death's Hunger, out of Theros Beyond Death, going from six and a half ticks to ten point five. That's almost sixty percent gains. That's on those back of those Grixis Death Shadow decks, finishing first in both challenges this weekend. 
and Croxa being present in both, I believe. And then the, there's also the black red decks that were doing well over the last month that were also running Croxa. So uh, probably worth taking another look at the most expensive version of Croxa and figuring out how much more expensive they can get. Uh, we've also got Cemetery Illuminator here out of uh, Vow going from four and a half ticks to seven and a half ticks, 65%. The only thing I could see in the competitive sphere where this was doing work was it was top 16 in a Pioneer Spirits list uh, on Magic Online. So I don't know if that moved the needle or what. Maybe it was getting streamed by somebody that I didn't catch. And then we've got Coligan's Command out of Dragons of Tarkir going from 3.5 ticks to almost 7 ticks for almost 100% gains, also being played in the modern black-red decks, and very good in this in this format where you want to get, you know, an Omnath out of someone's hand uh, while you kill a Mold Drifter, or you want to uh, destroy the Hammer and Hammer Time while you kill an Esper Sentinel or something. Mm-hmm. Some, okay, some fun cards there. Moving on over to cards to watch. Got some spice in here. Yeah, there's uh, quite a few this week. It's rare that we have the full seven. Yeah, because we're, we're back to having a pro trader selection. I got my stuff down in time today and had time to read through some some suggestions. And, and, it was, uh, and there was actually a worthwhile selection too. Th- yeah, there was a few. There was a few. My, some of them might show up again next week. So I'm going to jump in on some secret layer stuff. Uh, I think these Dan Fraser signets that have arrived and started to be distributed over the last little while are looking pretty good. One of the things I flagged here is that uh, Dan Dan Fraser is the guy who did the original Mox art. So for a lot of people that know that, that's going to matter. They do have a very unique look to them. Uh, I think these actually look look better than the original Moxes because as an artist, he's probably matured over the years. And if you're looking at which signets to select, I think Demir Signet and Arcane Signet are your first stops. Arcane Signet is a no-brainer. I mean, Arcane Signet is in 400,000 EDH rack decks, and that puts it at S tier staple. Now, keep in mind, one of the reasons it's that high is that it's, in, it's been included in a whole bunch of commander decks. And so anybody that registers those decks in the places that EDH rack is pulling from, that's going to inflate those stats. But the bottom line is, there is almost zero reason... I mean, very, very few decks in EDH don't want to run Arcane Signet. It's just the the two-mana mana rock of choice that does the obvious thing that you need. Every other two-mana Signet is generally going to be worse for you. So Arcane Signet's kind of an easy-breezy one. And in both cases here, I'm going with non-foils. Why am I going with non-foils when I choose foils so often? Well, in this case, the foils in question are not the extremely sexy multi-thousand dollar old border foils that they handed out to the uh, influencers and streamers uh, in some care packages that they dropped several months ago. These are fully etched, which means the art is etched. And having a bunch of etched cards on my deck, uh, on my desk that were prepared by Wizards production facilities in that manner, it seems to me like some people will like them and others will not. We've seen plenty of that with the etched anything. You know, etched just as a concept seems to have fallen a lot flatter than Wizards was hoping. But the non-foils are Old Border, Dan Fraser, Signets. And the thing about Signets is they've printed them a bunch of times, but they've hardly ever changed the art on them. And even when they have, it hasn't been notable. So to get an Old Border Demir Signet by Dan Fraser is just 
it's going to be a win for most of the people that would consider it and know what they're talking about. If you look at the supply currently on TCG Player, you got 19 listings left on the Demir Signet. And yeah, there's plenty of deeper inventory per listing. Like they're, the first one at $7 is 21 copies. You got another another vendor with 20 copies, and you got lots of 4Z, 5Zs, but it still isn't very deep. Like all of that told, you're still talking about less than 60 or 70 copies total. And the market will chew right through those. Like if you look at the sales history, they sell several copies per day, two, three, four, five copies per day at this $7 price tag. I think Demir Signet's going to go 7 to 15 plus, and that's going to happen in about a year. If you look at the Arcane Signet, which is even more desired, they're already at 11, but I think they're going to go 11 to 20 in the same time period. Both of these are good choices. It was the the signets was just going to be a matter of time, you know, just a, a matter of when is the right time to grab them, um, because their popularity in in EDH is basically unmatched or close to it. Uh, and I do like the non foil selections too. Actually, I just noticed that every pick this week of ours is non foil. So I unusual. I say I don't know if that's ever happened. I I don't think it has. Um. But I think I think picking these in non-foil is the right direction to go as well. I mean, I think it's not to say that the that the foil etched art would not work out for you, but I don't think that you're going to do poorly going with the non-foils. There's plenty of players that don't like the foils, but do want something a little different, and these are definitely a good way to go with that. Um, so and these prices so are pretty pretty agreeable too. Yeah. So check this out. The etched foil arcane signet goes for twenty dollars, and there's fifty-two listings. The non-foil arcane signet goes for ten to eleven dollars, and there's twenty-seven listings. You can get there are half as many, and you can get it for half as much. Yeah. That is the cleanest signal ever to get the non-foils. That's kind. That's kind of the same boat as one of my picks this week as well. Is it's just like you know we can we can like the foil more, but. If that's not what the market wants, then so be it. Uh, and you know, well, and let's be very clear: if they had been old border foils where the foiling had not covered the art, those would be skyrocketing faster. I still think the etched will get there. They will probably double, maybe in a similar time frame, maybe a little longer because there's more of them. I think, um, you know, it seems like there's more vendor inventory on the foil etch side. I. I suspect it's going to be hard to do wrong by these, and it's going to be very hard to do wrong having bought them at the original price. Because keep in mind, you could get five of these signets plus the arcane signet for thirty bucks in the original secret layer, and the foils being at forty. So <laughs> wins wins across the board from start to finish. Really, yeah, works out well. I think I think I, um, I think you're not going to be disappointed to pick up pick these up and you're also i don't really think you're worried about competing with reprints either here like obviously arcane signets and demir signets will get printed again but you know not really very unlikely you'll ever see them with this art in this frame ever ever right. again what's your selection uh i'm gonna go uh i'm gonna start this week with a card that i absolutely loathe uh boros charm specifically the secret layer art it's hideous uh, it's that Cupid artwork where it's, I don't remember the name of that secret layer drop, Smitten secret, Super Drop, I think. Um, so the, art, the artwork for this Boros charm is 
some little cupid with a sword and a crown hiding behind a heart with the boros fist i don't know the only person the only person who would like this is lee sharp but Speaking of cards that, you know, it doesn't matter what we think, what matters is the, what the market thinks. Boros Charm is in 50,000 EDA truck decks, right? Five, zero. Pretty popular card, especially for a card that's red-white. Uh, this version of the card has the non-foil version has 14 listings on TCG Player, which is less than foil, um, I think, right? Wait, or no, hold on. Sorry, not it is that I'm thinking of one of the other picks. Only 14 vendors for the non-foil copies here. Um, they're, the cheapest copy is actually the deepest supply. Uh, the store MTG Rares has 11 of them at 1050. Um, and then the rest on out are ones and fours. But there's only 14 vendors and it sells multiple copies a week. Um, this secret layer came out in February. So <clears throat> the copies landed back in like... You know, if they it was in February, they were the, the earliest price data that TCG is showing me is, is June, so that they were not landing in people's hands much before that, maybe a month or so. But they've uh, just about doubled in price from June to now. Uh, so, you know, you've got a real steady price growth from June to today. The inventory is very low. This had to have been bought in limited quantities. There's no way this sold a high volume of uh, a product. Um, it was a little too romantic for your average Magic player. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's not the type of card that most people are going to buy, but people are still buying them today and they're going to keep buying them. So with the prices and the inventory that's available here, you can buy these at 10, 50, 11 bucks. And I think you can shoot to get out at 20 or 25, probably 25 bucks, maybe within a year or so. Or even less than that. I just I, there's there's going to be very few, very specific people who like these, but I think there was just so few of them on the market that those people out there are going to move the price. Yep. When you have millions of people interested in something, you can still have even if most people agree that they don't like it, you can still have a niche that's into it. And in this case, we don't know if it's five percent of people that would prefer this version of Boris Charm or fifty percent. Doesn't really matter because this is a supply side play. There's basically no supply left, and the secret layers seem to be as safe as anything uh, in terms of insulation against reprint in this specific shape. Yeah, secret layer non foils have have you know historically done pretty well, and that's what you're buying here. So, and you know you talk about wanting to go after cards that are sort of off the radar a little bit. Uh, I think that's that's where you go. All right. Well, I already did two of mine, so why don't you do your next one? Okay, so my other one here is uh, Chrome Mox, which I don't think I talked about last week. Uh, so I'm going to talk about it here, but I remember looking at it a bunch last week, even though it didn't make it onto the, even though it didn't make it onto the cast, which probably would explain why I can't remember one way or the other. But the Double Masters non-foils for Chrome Mox look pretty well positioned. So Chrome Mox is in 70,000 EDA truck decks. Um, so definitely uh, a healthy supply there. And the legality of this card, this is, let me just double check here for you. Chrome Mox is not legal in modern, is banned there, but it is legal in legacy and vintage. So you get some additional play over there. I mean, that's really minor. But cube if you, 2. Cube 2, yep, yep, yep. But, you know, if you are playing those formats, you are more inclined to want the non-foil than the foil, I think. Um, the artwork for the Chrome Mox is pretty nifty. Um, looks like it could be at home in Unfinity, honestly. 
distinct enough that I think it's generally going to be relatively popular. There are 17 listings for non-foil double masters chrome mocks right now. Uh, I see one guy with more than one copy. So there's 19 copies of the non-foils here. Keep in mind that there appear to be uh, less than half as many non-foils as there are foils. We talked about that last week, but basically because of the way the foils and non-foils were distributed, we ended up, the whole market in general received a lot more, a lot fewer non-foils than foils. So... You can grab the non-foil chrome moxes here at 75 is the cheapest entry point. There's a couple available at that price and then one at 80 and then a couple at 85 and 90. So with 19 listings, 19 copies, there's just not that much here. So, you know, I think you can buy these at 75 and in the next year you're looking at what, like 130-ish, 140, um, even 120 is not terrible. So I, I think that, you know, if you've, if you've got slightly deeper pockets here and, you know, you're looking for something bigger to hang on to. This with this inventory, you know, you're selling a couple copies a week. It looks like here. I think you could do worse. This is a follow-on to our earlier points on the topic of non-foil double masters box toppers being more scarce in terms of their uh, market-facing supply than the foil versions that came out of the VIP packs because people over-focused on the VIP packs instead of the uh, boxes. And those boxes go for a ton of money these days. And we, we had just had a group buy on boxes recently where within, I think, two or three months, people are up 150 bucks a box minus fees Ooh. and shipping, which is pretty nice. Uh, and the boxes are actually selling at these at these high price points. So they're not going to be, it's only getting more expensive to access the sealed product that generates the non-foil versions of these, which means it's going to be hard for the market to fill in the gaps. Now, this is the kind of card that we'll see another reprint at some point, and so you're hoping to outrun that. And one of the things that we should flag is you did mention the foil version of the card back on episode 267, which was April of this year, and you called it 85 to 150 there, which is a pretty similar call. And there's still copies sitting around on TCG Player at in around 85 to 90. Now we're down to 43 listings there, and the ramp is reasonable. I, I think this pick absolutely gets there, and it's more likely to get there on the non-foil than the foil on a quicker timeline, given the difference in supply. I don't know if it happens in, you know, you're saying 6 to 12 months here. I think that seems reasonable for the non-foils. As you said, they'll drip out one, two, three copies a week off TCG until it gets sh shifted up to, I think the number I'm most comfortable with would be something like 125 to 130. And, and then people will start wondering whether they're just supposed to be buying a foil. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I kind of wonder if, you know, when I initially made the pick, however long ago um, for the foils, April, if I don't, I don't remember what the inventory list numbers looked like. Maybe the foil non-foil distinction hadn't borne out yet. Maybe, maybe it wasn't as obvious back then as it was now. But now that the inventories are starting to shrink, it seems much more, th that gap feels much more pronounced today. Alrighty, so my final selection is another secret layer card. Uh, this one isn't a Dan Fraser card, it's a Mark Poole card. One of the other interesting uh, nostalgic secret layer uh, releases this year that leveraged an old school magic artist. The card I'm talking about is the Wasteland non-foil uh, by Mark Poole, which shows Library of Alexandria being destroyed. 
uh, and that's pretty cool because I, I, I'm assuming Mark Poole also did Library of Alexandria. That seems very likely given how, what the setup is here. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's what I figured. So uh, that's pretty. That's super cool. There are a bunch of versions of Wasteland. Uh, there, I'm personally partial to the version we got in Zendikar Rising Expeditions. I think it's the cleanest, most interesting art uh, of all the available options. It's the classiest and the mo- probably the most advanced uh, artistically. But uh, this is Mark Poole, so there's lots of people that won't give a shit <laughs> about anything I have to say. And there are 84 listings for the foil versions. But again, we see way lower uh, inventory on the non-foil versions, just 31 listings. Now, those listings, again, because it's a secret layer and people buy, vendors buy multiple copies, you do have anywhere from 2 to 16 copies listed. And the ramp is moderately steep from the low 20s up towards the high 20s. It's gonna. T- there's probably 100 copies here, 120 copies that need to drain, but Wasteland is in 19,000 EDH rec decks. It's a major legacy and vintage card. This is the non-foil version we're talking about, so people that have non-foil legacy or vintage decks may be interested in adding this uh, to their stack. And again, that with that supply of the non-foils being half the supply of the foils, uh, I like what, how this is looking to go something like 22 or 23 to say 35 or 36 inside a year. Yeah, this is nifty. What secret layer was this part of? I don't it was, remember this. It was called... It was the same one as the signets we were just looking at. And it is called... It was from the all-natural, totally refreshing super drop this June. I, I and, remember that. And the, larger the, drop. the drop in question is called Artist Series Mark Pool. And it had alt art balance, birds of paradise... Uh, alt art brainstorm counterspell howling mind and alt art wasteland for thirty dollars in non foil, and I think at the time one of the things I said was we had never gotten the Mark Pool original Alpha Birds of Paradise art in foil before, and so the foil birds I'm guessing are also a thing. Just looking those up right now. God, good luck finding that Birds of Paradise with ninety printings. Uh... Uh, so the the non the birds foil birds are at twenty bucks, um, so that that's basically half the cost of the drop right there, and then you still have uh, Mark Pool Counterspell Howling Mine Brainstorm and the Wasteland like hard to do wrong. And the Mark Pool drop paid off, huh? Yeah, it looks pretty good. Did I buy a hundred of those? I think I did somewhere. I hope so. I hope so. I I'm sure I did uh yeah wasteland is wasteland right unbelievably popular card lots of different places every eternal deck every cube lots of commander decks probably more probably fewer commander decks and should run it um a cool artwork for it as well this does have some competition from man there's a lot of versions of this card uh but this is a solid one no doubt about that um and this actually saw uh, a price drop recently looks like uh just in the last couple weeks the non-foils um dropped from 25 30 down to 20 which is which is fine 
because they've probably just about flatlined at this point. So uh, these likely have kind of established their new floor and will give you a good move from here. I mean, there's some good inventory in here, a little more than some of the other stuff we talk about, but Wasteland is moves enough cards. And especially if you're, it's a lot of players out there, if they're going to buy one, they might buy four um, or at least multiple. So, you know, for a card as ubiquitous as Wasteland, the, the inventory doesn't bother me as much as if we were talking about, you know, whatever. Any of yeah. these other individual cards where someone's going to buy exactly one and never a second copy in their life. All right. So we do have a Pro Trader selection this week that plays into the whole Kamigawa Ninjas uh, Yuriko thing. And the card in question is Reconnaissance Mission, which is an uncommon out of Ikoria, so just uh, a little over a year and a half old. They reprinted it non-foil in the Innistrad Crimson Vow uh, uh, commander deck, but it's otherwise a single printing foil. And the non-foil versions are very cheap, and there's tons of them sitting around. They don't look like a play. Uh, the foils, on the other hand, are down to 14 listings, and they stretch from 2 or $3 up towards 10 so the call here is three to ten dollars. Uh, it's in twenty-one thousand EDH rec decks already. Bet you didn't see that one coming. And it's a pretty solid ninja spec, just on the basis of Yuriko. But it's just good in evasive decks in general. If you're running a deck that is flying through, using shadow to get through, you're using some other methodology to tap things down and get through or you've got Menace or whatever, and you happen to be running blue, Reconnaissance Mission is probably going to pull its weight. Uh, so I, I like the 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 ramp that's been set up here. Obviously, people have taken some early bites at this probably lately, and I would not be surprised if our boy Malou, M-L-U-U, out of our Discord, already owns some of this. Doesn't change the fact that these probably will... Uh, succeed at going from two or three dollars to ten just on the basis of ninja demand this winter uh yeah i mean the cards supply is definitely right where you want it to be those are pretty pretty tempting numbers here um can't argue with that giving all your creatures a fit in is solid uh so that that works as well i mean the, the card is definitely good enough and there's plenty of decks that are going to be interested in this effect um even if it's Feels a little overcosted to be perfectly honest, but people are playing it anyways. It has cycling, so that's a nice mitigating factor on that front. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the angle there, I suppose. But in any case, it's uh, it's a good one, one of the better listener picks we've had, just based on the inventory and the price points. I think, uh, and depending on where you're shopping, you might be able to find some real treats. Well, they're the, the, waiting for the, you. Their call was USA based, right? Assuming that you're getting them off eBay or TCG Player, but over in Europe, you can get them for a dollar. So if you've got access to that market. Hit it up. Yeah, good. if you've got any way to get a, a, a bulk order, it'll work out well for you there. And again, I don't think I want 100 of these, but I'd probably be fine to have 10 or 12 of them. Uh, yeah. Currently, currently, there's no love on this card in foil from Card Kingdom and other buy lists. So be aware that that suggests heavily that the market is moving on this card based on its overall popularity. And you can certainly ask the question, you know, Sure, Yuriko is very, very popular, but how many people are foiling out the deck? Probably a relatively small percentage, but 
enough of this is has drained out of the market as a foil uncommon. Keep in mind that when you open Ikoria collected booster boxes, you get tons of foil uncommons. So it's impressive when an uncommon can dry up to this extent in foil from a recent set. And uh, this one's on its way. So I think it's totally solid pick. Okay. Glad to see our listeners pulling through. Pulling their weight. Good job, yeah. pro traders. Do your job. Un- 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 unlike... <laughs> Shall we deal with alchemy first here? Oh, sure. Why not? So, according to yeah, Wizards I, of the Coast, I, there is a new I, format of Magic the Gathering that will be exclusive to the Magic the Gathering arena platform. I, I, alchemy, alchemy is supposed to be the science of turning lead into gold. Or shit, yeah. And Wizards has opted to turn alchemy on its head and take the gold of magic and turn it into a lead weight that is this format. So they say, it is our new MTG Arena play mode based on the standard format that incorporates new-to-digital magic alongside rebalanced standard cards to create a fast, ever-evolving experience for our players. They're going to launch with 63 new digital, new-to-digital magic cards featuring mechanics designed specifically for digital play, and players can expect more cards alongside every standard set release. Uh, and then it sounds like there's going to be rebalanced cards that are going to be released in between standard set releases. So what this all means is that they see flagging demand on arena in between set releases in terms of standard engagement levels. People get bored of the standard format. The meta gets very settled and they don't have a way of changing that and they get stuck. So they're watching their stats plummet. They don't like what they're seeing. They would like the engagement levels to be higher. And they are looking for a way to change that. And somebody came up with the idea to be more like Hearthstone and other straight-to-digital games where they have made rebalancing a major part of their ecosystem for several years now. Uh, many, many times I have seen, like on a, say, a Brian Kibler stream, him discussing rebalancing of Hearthstone cards and how it's going to affect the meta and so forth. Here's the thing. This premise is not bad in an uh, end of itself. There are two major thing impacts, however. One is the impact on the economy of uh, Magic Arena in terms of the kind of value that players are gleaning from that system, given that alchemy will be a part of it. So we can talk about that in a minute. But the first thing I want to address is the other side of this, which is what does alchemy mean in terms of how Wizards views standard as a paper format. Because from my viewpoint as a career marketer, this format is poison to the premise of how I understood standard to work in their marketing mix prior to the last few years. And what I mean by that is that standard has been a banner format. It is meant to be an on-ramp in terms of the engagement level of Magic players to transition them from being very new players to being more committed players. Modern, EDH, legacy uh, formats that uh, require deep format knowledge that and where you are going to end up playing people that have been enfranchised for years and years playing the same decks in many cases 
are can be much more daunting for new players than something like standard where you've got two years worth of cards you got six or seven sets you got to get up to speed on the meta is going to be more narrow uh you know four or five major decks with some fringe options and for a long time wizards seem to have every interest in protecting that scenario when you introduce something like alchemy where you're going to take cards you have just released in paper that you're expecting people to know how to play. And it's not even just that they're just in paper. They're also released on Arena. And then a few months later, in between set releases, you're going to rebalance some of them, which basically means fix them. So you take something like an Oko and you would change how his loyalty abilities go up or down to try to create a balanced card that people can actually still put in decks and it doesn't need to get banned. You run the tremendous risk of confusing the hell out of your audience if they have crossover from arena to paper. And you would imagine that it behooves Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro to want players to buy both paper and digital. I mean, that's the that's always been the win of having both uh, lines of business in motion where they can get you to buy not one, not two, but sometimes three versions of a card. If you're playing Magic on, playing Standard on Magic Online and Arena and in paper, you might own three different versions of the card acquired in different ways. If you have a new player that you're expecting to play, play the same deck in paper and online, but four of the cards are going to have different text, that is going to lead to a ton of feel-bads, confusion, judge calls, etc. And what it seems to signal to me is they don't actually care about standard and paper anymore and don't believe it's worth defending. The, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, you know, it, it kind of depends on how, how deep you think they're playing the game. Um, you know, if I'm not giving them a lot of credit, you know, I can look back at some tweets of Arilax who I was reading today because he was commenting on it and he was basically saying that this, because of the way the arena economy works, this is essentially improving, increasing the monetization and I guess pushing you more towards a gotcha model. Um, and I'll take his word for it, given that he's more, a lot more familiar with the arena economy than I am on the way that you know, we say arena economy. We just talk about the way that players spend money on the game. Cause there isn't an economy in the game. You know, if you're, if you're wizards and or if you're not Wizards, if you're Hasbro, and you're telling them that they need to turn the RPU up a little bit on Arena, you know, this might be an option. And, you know, maybe Foresight is gritting his teeth knowing what it does to paper standard, but they're saying they don't care, just give us more money. Um, it might not be as considered as you have outlined it here, which... I don't know whether that's better or worse. <laughs> if the, if their research tells them that the arena standard players are a very different animal from paper standard players that has minimal overlap, let's say it's only five or 10% of people that even post COVID would overlap in those domains, then I would have less, I would be less concerned about this. If you presented those facts, I would say, okay, this is, you know, it seems very obnoxious, but it will only be obnoxious for a few people. If, on the other hand, in a post-COVID world, which, by the way, <laughs> we see, it doesn't seem like we're anywhere close to a post-COVID world. So this is, 
in many ways academic. I think, I think the concept of post-COVID world in general needs to be abandoned at this point. It, entirely possible. So the they may just be making the smart decision, recognizing that in-store play for standard is not in a position to recover. Even if they wanted it to recover, they can fool around with it. This is the time to fool around with this, if ever there was. It's entirely possible that during COVID, they somebody pitched this and said, this is the time where we can test this and not worry about its impact on the brand because we're not in a position and don't know when we will be to support standard play at the LGS level. So we can focus on Commander and Modern and other supplemental products at the LGS level and try to help them in that way. And let's see what digital standard looks like if we do it this way. That's possible. Um, yeah, I, and, and it might even be the right choice. I wouldn't be, I would not be surprised if wizards basically looked at it and said, most people who play standard on arena do not play standard in paper and vice versa. Um, if you're a standard player in paper, maybe you are drafting more online or you are playing historic or if you're a standard player on arena maybe you are a modern pioneer legacy edhq player in real life like maybe because maybe maybe there's just not that much overlap how many people out there want to play standard in in both forms right like i never liked moto so i played modern in real life and i didn't play modern on moto but even if I liked Moto, I don't know if I would have been playing Modern there. Maybe occasionally to like test stuff, but I feel like if you're playing a format, you're probably only interested in playing it in one place. Like I'm just kind of like talking this through. Commander is kind of an exception here, but like from a competitive standpoint, like because if you're if you're showing up to FNM and you're playing against, you know, what Death Shadow and you know that type of thing in paper, like do you want to go home and play against the exact same decks online? Or are you going to go look for a different experience? And if the, so, if that's the case, right? Like, I don't know exactly which of these is true, but if it is the case that they determine that they don't, that they're not really overlapping, then they can basically just say, say we're just going to not give a shit about standard in paper. We're not going to cancel it, but we're not really going to worry about protecting the sanctity of it. And instead, let standard be its own thing on arena here. I mean, I can certainly speak to my own experience. During COVID, I have played lots of EDH on webcam. I have played very limited number of matches of modern in person and paper, and I draft on arena. So, I mean, there are. I'm definitely doing a different thing in a different in each place, yeah. and I didn't rush to go on Magic Online to play my modern deck when I got back from the tournament. So, you, you may have something there. Now, one of the things that's kind of awkward here is that it doesn't replace Standard on Arena. As far as yeah. I understand it, Standard still exists there. Yeah. But you're going to have to have two versions of your deck. So you could have, like, Blue-Red Dragon Control, the Alchemy version that will include some of the 63 new-to-digital Magic cards. And presumably, you're going to get a, like, mini-set of new-to-digital Magic cards every set release so you you not only have to keep up with standard you have to keep up with alchemy in parallel Pre and, and those have to cannibalize each other there's presumably 
you are not going to play both at the same time. And your willingness to play either or as a grinder or streamer may be deeply linked to the rewards for doing so. Yeah, I, I have to imagine they don't that people are not going to play both. You're going to play Standard or Alchemy, and I bet... And I don't know which one people are going to pick. Well, well I don't... Well, I, I, sh- I should say that. I think people are ultimately going to pick Alchemy because they get a few extra new cards, and they're going to like the fact that it changes. And I think Standard is going to be all but abandoned on Arena, and I think Wizards knows that. Yes. I, I think that's the thesis of the format, and Wizards is running an... Ex- a, a, pay, getting paid to run an experiment where they find out which one makes them more money, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah, I it's because they're they're going to be able to see the engagement levels on alchemy versus regular standard. And if alchemy soars and standard drops, they might just say alchemy is what we do with standard legal sets. Standard is a paper format. Alchemy is the equivalent online. You get extra cards to play with if you play alchemy. And and the disconnect there is the thing I was saying earlier about if you think those those di- Venn diagrams will eventually be heavily overlapping, it seems suboptimal because the arena player can't go buy, has to rebuild their deck. And their deck may not be viable without those digital specific cards. The, those digital specific cards may be the build-arounds of the deck. Well, the, the, the fact... The way Arena works with their wild card system, and you know, if you, you talk about Moto, you can just go buy the cards you need. But Arena, you can't do or that. rent them or rent them. Right, right, sure. What you can you can target the cards you need very directly. You don't have that option in Arena, and that might be precisely the the well, well, you the do. missing puzzle piece here. Oh no, 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 you do. But be clear, you do in Arena because you can buy infinite amounts of in-game currency and then craft whatever you want. Oh, but that okay. The, but it costs, there, there are, it costs you a bunch of money. Yeah, it may cost you money to get booster packs and crack them, and then you, you have to do tricks. Like I was, I I, I watched. A, I think it was a Jim Davis uh, video on YouTube where he was mentioning when a new set comes out on Arena, if you're going to be drafting a lot, what you actually want to do is take your common and uncommon wild cards, and you want to craft all of the commons and uncommons in the set that you can afford to. And I was like, oh, that's kind of counterintuitive. But the reason you do it is so that as you're drafting and getting lots of those, like way more than you would normally have, you you get past having four copies, you start contributing to your vault, which unlocks rares and mythics. Mm. So if, you, if you're intending to play standard or now alchemy on arena, there are these little tricks to try to work around the economy. But the reality here is that th- this... You know, alchemy is going to cost people ultimately more money because the alchemy boosters are going to cost the same as the regular boosters on Arena, which is a thousand gold or fifteen for three thousand gems. And gold is the currency you earn in game. Gems is the currency you buy with real hard money. Uh, and then apparently they're going to have a special alchemy bundle that has twenty alchemy boosters for three thousand gems or fifteen thousand gold. Limit one purchase per player, and then. The duplication system is going to be awkward as well. If you open uh, an alchemy booster pack and you get an alchemy version of the card, but you already have four of the card in non-alchemy version, original version, then the alchemy version will not trigger your vault until you have filled out the same card in the alchemy version. Which is a long-winded way of saying they're milking you a little harder. Yeah, gotcha game. 
Uh, I mean, that was that was kind of what I was saying was you to go back to to the player, you know, is a player going to play standard in both formats? It's like so you had to buy all the paper cards and then you're going to go home and like grind on arena to try and build the exact same deck or like I just another deck. I, I just I just don't really see it. You know what I mean? Like I just who wants to do that to put to put all those resources into playing the exact same deck or even the same format in both platforms it just seems unlikely um, now now i should point out that whether you're opening a regular booster pack or an alchemy booster pack on arena you when you find a card that has two has both versions you will get both versions no matter which pack you opened it from so that's nice yeah i i, I completely understand that this is a, an attempt to milk money out of players uh no doubt there um i i do see them basically in practice if not in technicality abandoning standard on arena because i mean moving to a full digital platform this this option is what it buys them they get to get closer they get to start to take what hearthstone did better than magic and take it back take and take some of that which is a constantly evolving metagame that they can have very fine-tuned control over and that they can monetize the living hell out of. Now, now so the fact, it's, now the, it's not surprising that they've worked their way here. No, you're right. Now, the, the, the interesting part here, of course, is how much do people trust Wizards to rebalance the format? Uh-huh. <laughs> because I can very easily see this going askew when they have something like an Oko. And they try to fix it. And if they either don't nerf it enough, and it's still just as much of a problem, and they have to nerf it again, or they nerf it too much, and then everybody's bitching, and they have to shift it back the other way. Like, you end up in this pressure cooker where you can't win no matter which direction you go. Because, I, because the person that's not running the card doesn't want that deck to be viable. The person that is running the card does want it to be viable. You're going to be getting a lot of conflicting feedback from the community, depending on how your balancing efforts are going. I don't play Hearthstone, so I don't know how all this works, but I would presume they have to face basically the same challenges over there. And one would imagine that well, and, they're and relatively and, fine at doing that. Well, it also generates massive amounts of social media content. Yeah. Right? Like one of one of the things about a, a game that has lots of releases, like one of the reasons we're getting more and more products is because it keeps us talking about it all the time. And... And one of the ways that that plays out from a marketer's perspective is that the influencers on YouTube and Twitch and whatever have more content to put out. Okay, they tweaked it again. This is the weekly tweaks. This is the monthly tweaks. The, the, the shorter you make that cycle, the more content those people get to generate, the more times your brand is being mentioned on those platforms. And that's what you're looking for. You want to get all those free mentions, right? So there are advantages that go beyond making a better standard. Yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely true. That it has trickle-down impacts. You know, content creators are, you know, if you're inclined to do online content, this is great. You have a huge stream of content where under the old pre-arena standard model, you know, by week five, what standard video are you producing? You're making videos about tier four goofy decks just to try and get something new to talk about but now you get to keep going to the standard well over and over and over because it's changing constantly i i mean it's clearly an, an attempt to, to take money from 
players. It certainly seems like they're going to roughly try and move their player base over to Alchemy because it will make them more money. And they get to tell players that it is more interesting and exciting because they get more updates more frequently. It keeps them engaged more, keeps their content producers making more content. Uh, and it gives their junior designers a playing field to cut their teeth on rebalancing cards because they're absolutely assigning as few man hours as humanly possible to this entire format while trying to keep it mobile, which has been the uh, comment, the threat of commentary on social media the last couple of days as they reveal all the alchemy specific cards. You look at the feedback that I, on every alchemy card that has gotten spoiled so far, all of the commentary I have seen has been, this didn't need to be online only. This was designed unbelievably poorly. You could have done such a better job with this. Why are all of these cards train wrecks? Uh, and and what you're referring to is the is the formatting and rules tax being ungainly, right? This oh is, yeah, like yeah. there there's cards where there was very simple ways to achieve the desired effect, but because they want to leverage like the word perpetually, which basically means uh, tracking the status of the card when it's not in play, like when it's in your hand in your library or graveyard. Um, and having the game arena automatically know what to do about it the next time it shows up, which is very much a Hearthstone thing that they're borrowing here. Example, one of the counter spells or one of the cards that they re- they revealed um, that is one of the 63 digital only is Absorb Energy, which is basically a cancel, one blue-blue instant counter target spell. And then it says cards in your hand that share a card type with that spell perpetually gain this spell costs one less to cast. So you're in a blue-red instance and sorceries spells focus deck and you counter somebody else's counter spell and now all your other absorb energies and and uh two mana lightning bolts and whatever costs one less seems good yeah stuff like that you know uh, the the formatting of that card aside because i did not look at it specifically is like it's fine that's nifty like it, it gets to do a little bit of other stuff that magic can't do um and i have no problem i i have no problem with those existing and it is nice that they get to kind of experiment in these ways that they couldn't otherwise. But you, then you look at stuff like Grizzled Huntmaster, which is the one everyone on my timeline was up in arms about. And like, I don't, I don't feel like I should read this card because it's just going to be 15 seconds of people zoning out. But like, <laughs> like literally every magic account I followed today like commented on or retweeted somebody who was saying what is the formatting on this card and it's like the sixth time it has happened in the last week um for a different card they just these are pretty rough designs yeah i mean so and a lot of this again borrowed from heavily from hearthstone and other games like it we've got ishkana brood mother uh a new version of this legendary spider from the Innistrad world. Three and a green for a three five legendary creature spider with reach. Other spiders you control get plus one plus two. And then for one green or black hybrid, exile two cards from your graveyard. Draft a card from Ishkana Broodmother's spell book. Mm-hmm. So she'll have some list of spells that you can put into your hand if you exile cards from a graveyard. does it faithful disciple does it yeah so i mean these are actually fun mechanics like i used to play hearthstone back in the day and then just kind of trailed off because i didn't 
didn't have any kind of robust grasp on me. Um, felt like a solid game, but not something that I like decided I wanted to spend a lot of time on. Uh, I, I think that people will that have not encountered these kind of mechanics before will find some of them fun. I think it's going to cause uh, lots of bitching up front, and then how it ends up will just depend on how well they actually manage these formats. Yeah, I wonder if they will ever print these in paper. Some of them are, as pointed out on social media, some of these are certainly printable in paper. Well, yeah, but I'm thinking, like, I wonder if they would ever release, like, a here's a paper booster pack of the arena cards written exactly as they're written online. Well, I mean, secret layer, right? That's exactly a perfect place to do that. Yeah, but you didn't you say there's 63 arena or alchemy cards? Well, you don't they don't have to do all of them. They can just choose a few of them. Do the Yeah, the I mean that ones. that might be the route they go. Um uh, it does seem like some of them. Well, a lot of these cards have spell books. What the hell? It does seem like there a greater than 5 or 6 of them would want a secret layer release possibly. I mean, if there's 63 cards, there's what like four or five mythics in here. That alone seems like stuff people might want and they could they could print them exactly as written and just and when it's like draft a card from Cursebound, which is spellbook like here this is for edh you deal with how to figure this out right like you, they, you they just they just sell you the tokens that are in the spellbook yeah well in that case for that one but like the you know the 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 counter spell that perpetually reduces the price mm-hmm. of the cards it's like we're going to print this card in paper we're not supporting it in any competitive format you deal with how to track this right like we're going to give you the paper version but we're not going to tell you how to deal with it because you're going to have to figure that out um i i you know they could do that or if it, or i wonder if they're all just going up as proxies because um wizards won't want to put them in paper it does seem like putting just a handful of them in secret layer is the most likely outcome Alrighty, so that Can, is but, that. That is wait, alchemy. Wait, one last point. Can we agree this format name is atrocious? Oh, brutal. Yeah. I mean, the the jokes are so it's such low hanging fruit. As you already said, like alchemy was the process of turning lead into gold, so it makes it seem like Wizards is trying to take a turd and polish it till it's shiny. Like that's just really dumb marketing. And there are so many obviously better names available than the word alchemy. Like it's it's silly. No, yeah, no, nothing came to me like right off the top of my head, but I'm like vintage and legacy those are good format names like modern that was a good format name like it was all the cards to, in the, modern border. to the point yeah like those make sense and pie we i remember we were griping about pioneer because it was like okay you're only pioneering the format for like a year mm-hmm. and that's not a pioneer anymore and i decided i think historic and and, and frontier was the same deal <laughs> yeah frontier yeah absolutely i think historic was probably it's probably fine i don't remember if we talked about that one i I, talk, I think that i think that one is also banal in the sense that it doesn't say anything it is but like compared to frontier and pioneer it at least doesn't feel my guess temporary. is that there my guess is that there are like some of this can probably be laid at the feet of the lawyers that there are trademark issues um that get in the way like i'm sure they've got some great names that are used elsewhere in the gaming space that are just problematic for them legally possibly well but we're i mean that i mean that, that could that, be it i mean that's how you end up with a name like infinity right <laughs> yeah well no they do that on purpose though 
Sure, but it's also they but it's also a lot easier for them to pick something like that that's a made up name. It's always easier to be a made up name whenever like in the startup space everybody's sitting around trying to think up the best made up name they can find. Correct. I I I just I was really struck. I'm like, man, Pioneer and Frontier were bad, but Alchemy is like a whole other level of terrible format name because it doesn't sound like a format. It also sounds like they're running an experiment on you, which is what they're doing. And I don't think it, the players want to be reminded of that in this case. <laughs> like it's just I, like what what like oh what what format is that event tonight? Oh, it's alchemy. Like I just uh, it's, it's not a format. Name. It's no God. good. Ah, all right. Infinity. Right. Infinity. The fourth unset, which no one at my desk asked for. We we're not the uh, interestingly enough we're not the target for this right and that and that's fine as as we have advised other people on other products we do not need to be the target so which I don't is, I don't which, mind which, that this exists I don't yeah it's it's slightly odd because we're on we're kind of the target audience because we recognize all of the references probably but at this or like we're the type of people who would be the ones to recognize the references. But at the same time, we have zero interest in silver border cards. But but yeah, <laughs> Rosewater's sense of humor, I put on the same level as my daughter, who's been plowing her way through a six-year-old joke book, and you know, asking me questions like, "What does the skeleton? What instrument does the skeleton play? The trombone?" And then she's very upset if I don't laugh hard for two minutes, and that's what every onset feels like to me. Mm. The, I mean, you know, I, I, I want. I'm gonna force a smile for Alara, but Rosewater can take can take a dive over it. Like I've never liked these sets. I I don't like cheap humor like this mixed in with my gaming. Uh, I do think that they're onto something here in the sense that they have recognized that silver bordering cards limits the commercial appeal. <laughs> so I'm not surprised to see that they're throwing things in here that they knew would move would move packs the hu- the humor is is very vacant and fifth grader but you couldn't really do much more than that um to be to be fair i think the actual onset for players like us are the time spiral sets those are our onsets because they're packed full of references, but they're not trying to be, they're generally not trying to be full of joke book quality humor. They're just interesting in callbacks and revisions to things you recognize. And like, it's a cool way to do that. The onsets are for people who collect Funko Pops. Like, but that's, mm. <laughs> all right, those people have money to spend, so so be it. Um, for sure, that just offended six pro traders that collect Funko Pops. I good, <laughs> so good. <laughs> you can know how I feel about this. Uh, go sign right, your so Funko Pop contracts. But let's let's dive in here on what they are offering. So it's another set full of a bunch of rando joke cards that you're going to have fun drafting with your friends once over beers and then forget you even own. However, they're throwing a few curveballs. Instead of silver bordering the cards, they're changing the hologram at the bottom of the cards if the card is meant to be a silly card that you can rule zero uh, in commander then it's going to have an acorn on it if it is not a silly card it will have a normal hologram on it 
assuming it's a rare or a mythic. If it's an uncommon or a common, they don't bother to hologram those. So I, I don't think that they've actually solved their confusion problem here fully. That, yeah, so... Sorry, go ahead. That said, uh, this is cool because it gives people options. Like, if you're the kind of commander group that doesn't give a shit and is just willing to let people table anything, even if the power level disparity is high, even if the game finishes in five minutes, even if the game takes five hours, if you're just there to have a good time and you don't care about the details, there are going to be tons of things in here that will bring a smile to people's faces over the years. Cool. Uh, they're also, though, coughing up eternal cards within the context of an unset. And what that means is that they're putting cards in here that are going to be legal in Legacy, Vintage, and EDH. So, you and I are not surprised by this. We've been talking forever about how every product they put out is going to be stuffed with some EDH potential because they know that that moves packs these days. And the the key, the off-the-top example they gave us here was a card called Saw in Half. Two in a black instant. Destroy target creature. If that creature dies this way, its controller creates two tokens that are copies of that creature, except their base power is half the creature's power, and their base toughness is half that creature's toughness. Round up each time. So you basically spit, split a creature you own in two, and presumably you're doing that with creatures that have onboard abilities, that you want to trigger twice, and you're basically setting up your combos with this thing. If you've ever wanted to lose twice at once, saw in half a phage. <laughs> sure. Um, so, hold on, I want to rewind. So let's let's just let's just think about this for a second. There are cards in here that are legal in legacy, and some that are not legal in legacy. The only way to determine that is by the hollow symbol at the bottom of the card, which, mind you, has never been used for tracking anything ever. Yep. It's the first time that hollow symbol has any meaning, and it is not indicated on the card that that means anything. Also, if it's an uncommon... Or a common. Okay, so wait. The uncommons that are... I'm going to call them silver bordered. The uncommons that are silver bordered still have the acorn, but the uncommons without the acorn are not are black border. No, I think commons and uncommons don't have hollows at all. No, no, no. Look, if so, I'm looking at the, the official page for this on the wizard's website uh -huh. and I'll link it to you right now. As assembled ensemble is an uncommon with an acorn. But just beneath it is the Space Family Goblinson, which is an uncommon that does not have a hollow. So I think... Yeah, I guess you're right. I, yeah. I yeah. think every silver border card is acorned, and the black border cards only have a... Basically reflect yeah, normal yeah, yeah, magic. Yeah, you're right. Good correction, and that's utterly ridiculous i I, st I started this not realizing that by the way like i that sent it it was only as i got halfway through that sentence i'm like wait it's not on goblin sin but it's on the ensemble okay Be because now because now like for instance on on something like space family goblin sin you're asking people to track the colors of the frame the color of the rarity symbol the name of the set in the bottom left corner the rarity of the card being doubly referenced to the right of the card number, and then potentially you're going to tell people that this is a not necessarily strictly legal card with the acorn. 
whatever, man. I mean, it's not going to be a problem for me, but making your if you're trying to go mass market, like we talked with Ed last week about, you know, the difference between Pokemon and Magic, making your products increasingly more complicated is a good way to lean into the enfranchise players. And I know that's doing well for them. And so they feel very emboldened to keep expanding on that. But I still worry about those on ramps. It, it, it does actually matter how easy it is to learn the game this, and par- this... parse the product. I mean, I, I can understand how you can look at this and go like, okay, a new Magic player is very far away from getting into this set. Like, like we sure. don't expect them to encounter this. It's you, you can make the argument that this is a high enfranchisement, like high engagement <clears throat> product for an experienced Magic player, yes. Yeah, so, if, yeah, if they release something like this in Pokemon, and then I, never having played that game, decided to start playing Pokemon... I'm not even like I'm. I'm not even really gonna know where to start. Like I'm gonna walk into the store and ask for like a pack of the newest set, or like if they have intro decks, or I'm gonna get a friend to help me out. And it's gonna be a long time before like I bump into that Pokemon unset because it's just not positioned in a way. Like the way that you find out about it and go play that is through the channels that you're only familiar with after you know the game. I guess. Yeah, you're gonna so, you're gonna search YouTube for getting into Pokemon, and they're not gonna recommend this. Right, right. This isn't even going to come up. You're going to find out, like, I'm sure there are plenty of Magic players who played the game for two years before they ever found out there was an unset. Or they saw a Silver Border card in somebody's collection and was like, what the hell is this? Um, that's, I mean, but that said, like, this just seems, oh, God. It's just, I'm imagining opening these packs and, like, you could know the game and be like, wait, which, so this is legal, this isn't legal, but wait, can I play this one in EDH because it's Black Border? Well, no, this this one's legal in EDH, because it's got the normal hollow and this one's legal in EDH because it doesn't have a hollow. But this one, even though it looks the same, isn't legal in EDH because it has an acorn, but your deck group might play with it anyways. Like, well, yeah. That, and that's the whole thing. You've got, <gasps> you've, you've, you've got a pile of maybes. I yeah. don't think that actually solves the problem they're looking for. What they should have said is these cards are intended for EDH play, but it's up to your group as to whether you want to play with them. No, see, they they have I, sort they have sort of said that, but I I just think that maybe there are so many rules stickler personalities, people that like to do things the exact correct way, that I think on the balance more groups will frown on this than accept it, and I don't think the acorn is much different from the silver border because you're just going to have, especially if you're showing up at a random GP or an LGS night for EDH. The odds that the people there want to play with your silver border cards, if it means you have a better chance of winning, is going to be low. Okay, so hold on. So, the for, for to be clear, acorns are silver border cards. They just are printed with a black border. And we're going to come back to that in a second. I, I saw some other people comment, like, why are they printing these in black border? If you wanted to play silver border cards in EDH, you could anyways. Like, your group could just allow it. That is correct. I still think this was overall a good idea because having those formally drawn lines around what is legal and not legal is good and necessary for players like yes your group can choose to allow things and not allow things and it should but ultimately having a clear set of rules that everyone at your your local store 
can abide by and like you can show up to an fnm to an edh fnm at any random store or in people that you don't know that well and know that as long as everyone there is following the rules of the format that you're all playing the same game that's good that is a good thing to have and it's it's good because people need it like you don't even whether or not it's good for the game or or whatever it's, it's beside the point people need that and this, this, there's a lot, there's lots of stuff about this and other game design components. And in th- this is important. The way that they executed on it is my problem. The, the execution, though, there shouldn't be acorn symbols. They should have just printed the damn cards with silver borders or because given them some other humongous indicator that it was a silver border card. Because like, why the, hide the, it? Because the, exactly, because the, because they're trying to lean on the fact that people will not notice that these are as different. And so we'll be uh, more inclined to include them in decks. The problem with that is that as you outlined in the last few minutes, they're gonna just not notice that the card isn't has an acorn on it. They're not. They're not even gonna think to look at that that hollow. They're gonna put a, two or three acorn cards in their deck. They're gonna take it to EDH night, and if it's with their friends and they're down with it, maybe nobody even notices. Or maybe somebody notices, informs them, but they say, let's try it. Or maybe they say, let's just do this. We're going to do this from now on. Or they show up at an LGS or a GP or whatever, and people go, what the fuck are you doing? Like, no, this table doesn't play with those cards. And now you've got to go find replacements for your deck? Like, yeah. s- such feel bads. And it's, it's, it's sneaky without being effective. That's the problem. If, if they're silver border, at least it's easy to flag one when it hits the table. The thing with an acorn on webcam these days, I'm not going to notice if you play one of these and I haven't memorized that card. I'm not even going to, it's not even going to occur to me to ask until we're halfway through the game. Well, you're going to notice when they go, oh, I cast a spell and I create a 1 1. <laughs> you have to pull your pants, you have to pull your pants and down and. And, you know, and you're be like, wait, why does that create a token? You're like, well, it's got a robot in the art. And you're going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> you you, you got to do a chicken dance or you can't pass a card to the left. Like. Yeah. Any, it's, anyway, I, let, let's I think, move. Let's move along here. Well, I just ultimately I think that I think that taking the onset and splitting it in half, or or I should say, making a bunch of the on cards legal in commander and other formats is a totally fine idea. I like it. I just wish they had done a way better job with the visual design on it. But, well, speaking of which, there's a show cars showcase card treatment here. mm Hmm. Some of those have been great. Some of those have not been so great in, in sets in the last couple of years. This is all part of the booster fun uh, experiment. Uh, in this case, apparently Showcase is going to be retro pop, which basically means 1950s, early ni- late 1950s, early 1960s advertising cartoon style, which is going to resonate like fucking zero with most of their current market. Like, I'm towards the upper end of the age of people that still play magic and this does nothing for me it resonates it's for sure before my time it's like a mad an artifact out of an episode of Mad Men, and this is straight this looks like it's straight from rosewater and this sensibility is not going to be popular my so i i mean I, i don't put this on rosewater everyone loves to put everything on rosewater i don't think he's a bad guy i think he's 
I think I he's a guy with. The... I, don't, I don't think he's a bad guy either, but I think he's in a position of power where he gets to execute on his own dreams and vision for the game. And I think that it's very clear that this, the, first of all, the whole unthing is very much his. That's always been yes, known and established. Secondly, this whole like this look and feel that I'm seeing here is a discussion between him and an art director. The, that this would, is a mo- that would that would not have gone in this particular direction if it, if he had not been part of that discussion. There's a it's a minor pet peeve, very minor pet peeve of mine that people like to lay a lot of blame at Rosewater's feet, and I think he has less of power than people realize. Like, do people know that Forsyth is Rosewater's boss? Like, I, like I, I, I don't know if people know that. So yes, onsets are his, and I'm sure he was in discussion for art design. Um, but people really like to blame, and it's not just this. People like to blame Rosewater for everything, and it's I, like, I guarantee I, you, Rosewater did not come up with alchemy. I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know it for a fact. I'm just accusing. Sure, so. sure, 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 so, sure. Fair, so fair, fair, fair. I mean, this is now, this is a guy who brags about how every T-shirt in his wardrobe is a superhero, and he can wear a different shirt to work every day and never double up in a year. Like that's clearly a personality. Um, all right. So that that said, I I I was also a little surprised to see this art treatment, and I have a feeling these are going to be uh, super. Uh, what is the right way? Polarizing. Not even polarizing. Really hit or miss. Like, I think the Space Family Goblinson is completely uninteresting, and zero people on the planet are going to care about that all art. Like, it's just. First, I, first of all, this is a product produced in 2022 for presumably an 18 to 44 year old audience. The, the meme here is from the 1920s or 30s or something. Like, when did the Swiss Family Robinson, the book, come out? That most of the people that see this card will not even make that connection. That novel was written in 1812. To be to be fair, anything referencing the Swiss Family Robinson is is way past it because the book is so old. The, the TV, the movie, right? The Disney movie that was the real big one was 1960. Sure. But, that was where it got its... But again, this is, this is like Rosewater's childhood. I... <laughs> I he's, mean, he's in the age bracket that the boomers in in this age bracket that rem, rem, that definitely watched was Family Robinson in the movie theater that definitely remember this particular art style, and I don't understand who they're targeting this at because I have lot plenty of trouble believing that the people that will be most into the like happy go lucky fun thing they've got going on here are of of are the fifty and sixty year old magic players. Okay, well. Hold, so, all right. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna diverge a little bit here. I mean, I'm filling my I'm I'm 36 and I am currently filling my house with furniture from the 1950s and 60s. Like D- you different, know, like uh, different thing I, entirely. I mean, they're they're different, but I I I'm just highlighting that like things from the 50s and 60s don't immediately become and you know lost to the the history lost to history. Some of them are useful, or some of them are still appealing. Agreed. Some of these references, you're absolutely right, are going to go way over people's heads. And I, when I saw, and, and you're right, they're going to, they're like, there's no, there's very, very few people in Magic who are going to be the target audience for some of the stuff. And this is what I mean by like super specific in terms of whether it's hit or miss. Space Family Goblinson, I read it and I'm like, this, what is this? Why this is a reference, but I'm not getting it. And then I, I saw the Swiss Family Robinson. I'm like, oh right, right, right. Okay, I remember that. Like that's going to miss a ton of people, and I really don't understand who's going to want to see that? Like you you and I are on the board with that card as a reference to his family Robinson. Not great, but, but the art style, I think, like you said, will be hit or miss. So space family Goblinson, eh, 
Yeah, the, the art, the, the specific artwork on that card does nothing for me, and I think most people will feel the same. But scroll down the page on the Wizards to the Collector Booster package, and you see the Infinity Collector Booster packaging, and it's kind of got that like green alien with like the white and blue jacket. Yeah, early '60s sci-fi. That one looks kind of cool. Like, I actually think that one works pretty well. Now, I'm not telling you that, like, I'm going to go buy that card because I love the art, but I do think that that lands much better than the Space Family Goblin set. Um, well, I mean, and I, I, I think it lands in the sense that this this is on point in terms of locating itself within this era. I just don't think there's anyone left alive playing this game that has nostalgia for this era. Well, I, it doesn't have to be nostalgia for the era so much as you can just appreciate it on an aesthetic level. I think that the Space Family Goblinson artwork is not appealing aesthetically, setting aside all all nostalgia. I do think when I scroll down and I see that green alien in the white and blue jacket, I like that. I like that drawing. It's not nostalgia for me because I'm not old enough to have nostalgia for it, but I do like the drawing. And I think there will be a handful of cards with this specific art that work really well that people like because it just looks cool but a lot of it will just kind of fall flat because unless it's really good it won't it has to stand on its own two legs basically all right so let's dive into some of the more key financial points here i want to argue about art (laughs) they're 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 also throwing collector boosters into the mix here which i also think is a is a is a dubious decision but they're backing it up primarily by giving us the first set of borderless shock lands so we're getting all 10 shock lands they have space themes some of them are more interesting to me than others generally we're talking about good art here whether or not you want to play with sci-fi themed shocks in your deck is is another question but i would certainly say that like for instance godless shrine yeah uh, looks really good uh hallowed fountain watery grave likewise um the it's weird to me that they're going to go space on the first time they introduce the borderless shocks, but I guess they didn't know where else they wanted to put them and they needed something to anchor the set that would allow them to feel confident in backing Rosewater's play here because they've clearly been fighting against releasing these joke sets for years on the basis that they're poor sellers and they're hoping this is going to shore that up. It will to a certain extent, right? Like if this stuff was absent and the commander and the, uh, commander intended playable cards were absent this would be a this set would be a pass for almost everybody in our in our group like hundreds and hundreds of people that are otherwise super interested in mtg finance and buy some of many of the products they put out would probably have skipped this entirely but given that they can get some pretty cool full art basics here even if that's like the umpteen time we've gotten something like that and we're going to get full border shocks people are interested there some of this will sell now the other thing they're doing is this thing called galaxy foils so they're experimenting with yet another foil treatment uh they say besides the traditional foils that every magic set has they're going to have a new unique foil treatment called galaxy foil the foil looks like stars in space we aren't showing it off today but we will show it off closer to the release so my guess is this looks like pokemon foiling Mm. this looks like pokemon pokemon hollow foils where everybody gets really excited if there's like a swirl in the stars and they're trying to like mooch off of a little of that and add their own thing so if you look at this like package of the front of the the front of the infinity collector booster box that you said you liked if you picture those uh you know colored planets and stars on the front of that 
being foiled specifically in their own colors against a black background. That could be what we're looking at here. Um, whether okay. those whether those are going to hit with with collectors or not remains to be seen. We'll have to see see how they look, whether they curl, etc. But uh, certainly worth keeping an eye on as they so do more all, reveals. All of their commentary about the lands aside, we'll get to that. I'll just I'll come out in just a second. But now that they've called these galaxy foils, that means if they continue to use these in the future, they're locked into calling them galaxy foiling. Yeah, they're, they're so, going to be on like, Kamigawa with galaxy foils. That seems. Yeah. So so, so I'm guessing well, like that's not what's happening, but we'll see. Somebody, someone in Wizards has the job of naming things, and that person is obviously a nepotism hire because there's no other way. Is that the same person named Alchemy came with Galaxy Foil? Uh, I think that I think these Shocklands look phenomenal, and I think that they're some of the best Shocklands, probably the best version of Shocklands out there. Well, yeah, because we've never had premium Shocklands before. Yeah, and I, but I think even if they released borderless shocklands in a standard set next year in 2022 in a standard set so the same frame as what we're seeing here uh but with like more plain specific art or more generic art i think these would still stand alone um the fact that they're a different that they're you know this kind of space theme with the planets and very atmospheric i think they really nailed nailed them and i think for the most part they're all very good uh the temple gardens like mediocre because that one could just be on mirrodin but maybe that but maybe that works in their in its favor i'm not sure yeah like it's not that none of them are bad it's just these ones like they don't jump off the page of me which is temple garden stomping ground is like it does kind of pop but like i don't know if i love it seems a little flatter than the other designs um same with the breeding pool but like the Sacred Foundry, the Godless Shrine, the Blood Crypt, the Watery Grave, the Hallowed Fountain, those are all excellent. And I can see these being top-tier Shockland choices for a very long time. Ah, I should point out that I was wrong. I said previous earlier that we didn't have any premium shocks. That's not correct, because we had Zendikar Expeditions um, yeah. do exist for all You for said the borderless, though. Yeah, so we don't we don't definitely don't have borderless, but we do have one other premium. And worth noting that something like a uh, Zendikar Expedition Steam Vents currently goes for about $180. Now, how much, like, the most obvious spec here is to ignore the sealed product completely and just go after these portalist shocks. <laughs> because if this set doesn't sell very well, and I sus- very much suspect it's going to sell mediocre to medium, like, people will buy them looking for these and then realize they can just buy these and most of the people will fall out of the interest mix and just focus on singles. The people that are really into the concepts on display here will go ahead and buy buy some product, but pro- those kind of people will probably buy like one box, one collector booster box and call it a day. The, the finance types will dabble with the sealed, but focus on the singles and will be obviously looking to set up singles group buys on these because if a vendor in Europe can cough up six or 700 copies of these, they will be very popular. Oh, okay, the border. All right, I'm trying to make sense of this. The borderless shocklands will show up in one out of every 24 packs and draft boosters. Okay, so if you buy a box of draft boosters, you'll get one. one. Not and a lot. One out of 24 in each of the two slots in the collector's boosters. So. There's so, two so, so there's, slots. Yeah, so there's a slot for traditional foil and galaxy foil. In the collector boosters, separate slots. 
And and you've got a one in twenty four in each of those slots. So basically, two. Uh, you're gonna since it's one in twenty four in each of the slots, you'll probably get one per collector booster box. That will I, that will either be traditional foil or galaxy foil. And every once in a while, you'll get real lucky and hit both. Are there twelve boosters in a collector? Twelve boosters in a collector booster? Correct. Yeah, I. I mean that makes so, these fairly rare, right? Fa- fairly rare, yeah. They're, and they're like, they're basically positioning these very similarly to Zendikar uh, expeditions, but actually more rare than that because in a Zendikar Rising uh, collector booster box, you had box topper, and the potential to usually pull something like one or two uh, foil uh, expeditions out of those things. This sounds like you're going to mostly get one. Now this this does say each draft booster and collector booster comes with a box topper booster. Bo- it oh, comes with a yes. box topper booster that includes a traditional foil border to the Shockland. Now, so the, ga- the, com- the ga- that means the galaxy foils are the chase. So do, does that mean that if you um, you know if 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 in our group I I said I want to I want eight collector booster boxes, would I get eight box topper boosters? Should, or should I say, let me ask, let me ask this more broadly. I, For any random person, not just dis, our Discord members, if they go order a cl- multiple collector booster boxes from a single store, will they get multiple box topper boosters, or will they get one per order? I think it's going to be inside the box. In, it's in the box. So, so basically what it means is that you're guaranteed to get a foil borderless shock. You have a... chance to pull another one. And then you have likewise a 50% chance to pull a galaxy foil one, which leads me to believe that the galaxy foils are twice as rare as the traditional foil borderless, which means the galaxy foils are going to be the chase. Because you're only going to pull one of those out of every two collector booster boxes, which means you need about $500 in product. Well, these are probably going to get cheap. Let's call it $180 per. So you're going to need $360 in retail product on Amazon three months after release to pull one of those out. So they're probably going to be worth some pretty significant money, um, especially if the Galaxy foiling looks great. If it doesn't and it's poorly received, then it could be the traditional foils that people prefer. One of the things that factors in here certainly is that the Galaxy foils uh, may be too different from the other foils in your deck. You know, like lots, lots of people like things to be matchy-matchy. Yeah, the, the the quality of that galaxy foil is going to be a humongous feat factor here. Um, anyone who's ever held the JSS card knows what I, I'm talking on, about. Honestly, I think that's actually a good example. That that is probably pretty close to what these are going to look like, but I think these will be more subtle. Those JSS fractals, fractal mm-hmm. patterns, were very intense. And yeah, and people hated those. Yeah, they were they were not popular. They were really very over the few top. people. Yeah, very few people really like the JSS foils. Um, so I would presume I, that Wizards is well aware of how w- well those landed. I, I will say that I, I'm very interested to see how some of these look. I'm going to go out and predict that Godless Shrine, Hallowed Fountain, and Watery Grave are going to be the ones where the galaxy foiling works the best because they are space scenes. If you look at Overgrown Tomb, which is a close-in shot of a derelict spaceship in an asteroid field foiling space foiling on that is going to look much more forced yeah 
Uh, yeah, I'm, also, more... also super, super nice to get a fancy godless shine that's not a Noah Bradley art. As much yeah. as I, I, as much as I love and respect his original art, he, the guy's toxic now, so <laughs> can't eat, can't table it and be proud. Whereas this God, is, is he, is he ever too? By the way, like yeah. he came, he came back again. Oh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and was just as worse this time than he was in the past. Um, the foils look like stars in space. Yeah, I'm not, not sure what to make of that. So I do think I do think the the takeaway here is I think these shocklands these shocklands could end up being pretty pricey, um, and also I think they're they they stand a chance of running very popular, especially for specific ones. Sacred Foundry, Godless Shrine. I think Sacred Foundry too. Like that's a really cool Sacred Foundry. Steam Steam Vents has some very intense color saturation contrast that I think is going to be popular. Yeah. I would agree. Overgrown tomb is definitely close to the bottom of the pile. Breeding pool is real weak, um, but you know these are very cool, and these are the types of things that, like, if you are playing EDH and you really like to go all out, you're gonna want a bunch of these because not you know you know you're like okay, well, I have like twelve EDH decks, and they all run two or three shock lands. If I really like these, that's a lot to collect. So the the limit is very high on these. This doesn't even count your constructed decks. Also, I assume that these are going to be available in non-foil too. Um, well, well, here's the thing: the foil. If I'm reading this correctly, foils are in the collector boosters, and in fact, the collector boosters for this set are all foil. So you can't pull a non-foil anything out of them. Where mm. whereas the draft, the draft versions are the non-foils are going to come into the draft boxes. So if if it turns out that as with double masters the less of the non-foil shocks end up floating around they could you could end up in a very similar position where they they are floating you know probably the galaxies are the most rare and they take off first and then maybe the non-foils and then and then the foils um we'll have to see how it plays out were there draft boosters for modern horizons too mm-hmm. were and there were collector booster boxes for modern horizons too and set booster boxes Okay, what was the price of the collector boosters for Modern Horizons two? Mm, I mean, pre-orders were in like three hundred to four hundred range. And what um, was the cost? And, of I, a and draft I think, and I think box? the last one we did was like eighteen seventy nine a case, which was like three twelve or three thirteen a box. Okay. And I suspect What's, that those are headed for four fifty to five hundred within a year. What was the price of the draft booster boxes? I think they're two twenty or two forty, something like that. So like fifty percent less, roughly, uh, or just... or thirty to forty percent less. Modern Horizons two draft booster box on TCG right now lowest price is yeah like two ten. Okay, so it's conceivable that the draft booster boxes are a better choice than the collector boosters because if you buy, we're making a lot of assumptions here. But both of them, both boxes guarantee you a foil shock. So you're you're already in for one guaranteed. The collector boosters don't have that great a return on additional ones. Um, and I'm I'm going and the draft the the CBs don't have a great rate of return on additional shocks. The draft boosters, I don't even I'm, at this point I'm not even clear whether you can pull more foils or 
of them out of the draft booster yeah, boxes. Yeah, but Galaxy Foils... But you can pull non-foils. Yeah, yeah, but Galaxy Foils... Hold, fo- on, hold, on, hold on, hold on to Galaxy Foil. But you can pull non-foils out of the draft booster box, which you can't pull out of the CBs. Plus, you get all of the other cards, presumably several of which will be useful in EDH, and you will get a higher volume of them in the draft boosters than you will the CBs. So that means the Galaxy Foils would have to basically be good enough to make up the price difference between the draft booster box and the CB. I yeah. guess because you're and because it, you're guaranteeing but, but, but they one might. foil. But they might. They might. They might. I guess if you're guaranteeing one foil boot, one foil shock in either box, but the non-foils are only available in the draft booster boxes, because you're getting so much more product. A kind, at a cheaper price, I wonder if those end up being better off. It, but, it it really the primary determinant here isn't really what we what we think may or may not occur. It's going to end up being what percentage of the product mix yeah. is is each of the two products. If they produce fifty fifty, that's one thing. If they produce eighty twenty in one direction or the other, that's another thing. We know with like VIP versus double masters boxes, it felt like there was more VIP around than there were boxes. But I think what actually happened was that there's way more boxes, but speculators, every speculator that ever speculated on Magic bought the VIP packs looking to open hot things and flip cards and whatever and bought tons of them. Like we we had several large group buys that where people went very deep on those and then were very disappointed where they didn't weren't able to flip things that came out of them within two months, even though fast forward now, the low price on those things that we got for like 92 a pack or 88 a pack or something is now 160 on TCG. So on just a little over a one year hold, you had double up minus fees and shipping. (laughs) I mean, VIPs were, have turned out much better than people feared they would um, in just a year. So I don't know what's going to happen here. We need more details. We, we need to hear from some some vendor partners and get an understanding of what the product mix looks like and which parts of it are going to be more or less rare. And then I very much suspect that the this this whole thing is about the shocks plus probably five to ten commander cards. And of those five to ten commander cards that people think are going to be really good, it's going to end up being two to five that will actually see a lot of play. And you're going to be looking to get fancy versions of those plus the shocks. And what you're hoping for is that you open product, but no one else does. Yeah. Well, I, I agree completely that, um, you know, we're just spitballing ideas here until the, the numbers start to come in a little harder. And we get an idea of whether the galaxy foils are good because those are huge factors. So this is all just sort of hearsay. Um, I'm mildly more optimistic on the returns for EDH cards, primarily because this is the first time their unset cards are playable in EDH. So they may juice it a touch in terms of the power level. Uh, um, so I have one final point here before we wrap up. This, this first of all, this set comes out April 1st. So it comes out on April Fool's. That's going to just confuse people, period, because anything done in April, anything done in April Fool's is called into question. So, if, yeah. And, th- and this has been a few years where people are, very stressed, very busy, can easily be recovering from COVID or something. So aren't necessarily up to speed with things. Like I've definitely had pro trader members come to me and said, sorry, I haven't been around for the last two or three months. I've been sick. Things are going on right now, right? So <laughs> something, anything released, I guarantee there will be people that see ads for this set on April Fool's and are asking other people on social media if it's a real set or not. Now, yeah, that'll happen. final piece of the puzzle. 
Take a look at that cover again that you said you liked for Infinity. See how that sticker for packed full of rares and foils is peeling off? Yeah. Remember how the MSHF, the, the mischief drop for Secret Layer had a peelable card? I do. I. No, I don't think so. I think they well, did. I think they did. Ugh, I said that, and then I thought, hmm. I, I'm willing. I, I, I'm not gonna bet. There's no specific evidence other than that one little marketing tidbit. But if I'm putting that label on the box, there's no reason to have piece of it tucked up like that, unless I'm trying to send a subtle signal that there are peelable things inside these these packs. <laughs> and and if and if some of these cards are like. Uh, there have been uncards in the past where to use them you had to destroy them there this all comes of course is rooted in chaos orb where people back in the day used to cut up their chaos orb to throw it all over the table to win a game it, it wasn't it wasn't people did it it was one guy like ripped it in half or quarters or something and then it was sure. deemed a legal play and, and, and then it's a legend it's yeah, been a legend yeah, ever yeah. since so i could easily see them leaning into that and having a thing where a card gets better if you peel it but you can only do it once yeah or, or, or I, like or you irreversibly turn it into another card by peeling it if you if it remains unpeeled it's such and such a card with such and such text once you've peeled it which might be a game action that you can take under certain circumstances, it evolves, it gets better, or it switches to a different card. I could for sure see them doing that and the novelty, leaning on the novelty of that to sell the set. If they went through the process of figuring out how to do it just for the mischief drop, I would be very surprised. So I think the strongest point here is why would they have gone through the effort to do it for the mischief if they weren't going to do it anywhere else? That that to me is the strongest argument because that doesn't seem trivial to have manufactured to have like figured out and manufactured all for that exact one card. Curious. So that I think is a good point. And the, and, the, and this is the perfect product for it. The, the, this is unquestionably the if they're going to do it, this is a product to do it. So like, I would agree. Yes, that makes sense. The, as for the the little label on the box, uh, I mean, I can understand. If the peelable cards didn't exist, I could still see them doing this because it's just sort of like that that like art gimmick, right? Instead of just looking like a, a printed image on the box, it's like somebody slapped a sticker on the box. It's just just an advertising yeah. thing. Like, I, sure, but why I, a, but why a sticker? You said it yourself, right? Well, it's just, just as like a, I mean, as someone who doesn't do marketing, I have I've definitely seen other products completely unrelated to magic that do this like print something on the box that make it look like it's a sticker type give it of thing. give it some three-dimensionality yeah right right like i would never think twice about seeing that on any product anywhere it's possible but like the fact that it's here on this product immediately after we've seen a peelable card definitely raises an eyebrow so i didn't notice that as a very good catch I, uh did you find that or did you somebody else point that out so, somebody you? else mentioned that somewhere yeah. in the discord I think. It, it, was, it was it's a good catch. whoever found that it was a good catch uh i guess we don't have anything to do with that at the moment but it is worthwhile pointing out but th- i'm not done well There's what, actually something else. one of the things that's funny about that is what if they fuck it up <laughs> like what if what if by peeling it you have a chance to get something really really special or really really cool or it's just a really good card that people actually do want to peel and play with and then the peeling keeps ruining the cards <laughs> like when they when you peel it off it like like 
breaks up into strips like the glue the adhesive's not super reliable so it doesn't come off cleanly and you end up with a super fucked up magic card and they've got to like take about thousands of them back in through their customer service process like i could easily see this going very wrong if these were produced in the texas facility yep or or it turns out that uh the cards are peelable it's a really great gimmick that works that works for like the first six months and then it turns out like they age poorly in the packs well, I mean, and that yeah, that could be a thing too. And then, like two years later, all of the any peelable card in a booster pack has peeled for for the eighty for the eighties kids listening. Like, just think about like opening gum out of a ten year old baseball card pack and how terrible that was. Right. So, like, I it, it is a, it is a good question. God only knows how all that will play out. Um, the one other thing I want to touch on is the the basic lands that they printed. I think that there's two versions of these. The planetary lands and the orbital lands Mm -hmm. the planetary lands in didn't really do a lot for me some people will like them i don't think they're bad at all they're they're fine i think the they look like mirror yeah yeah which is for better or worse is fine um there i like the saturation on the red one but in general they're they're fine but not stellar i think the orbital ones are all are something special I think these are going to catch people. These are really great. They're, the art quality here is high. They I'll have, have, a, they, they have a tremendous sense of grandeur. Yeah, to Adam, I can't... Adam Paquette. Adam Paquette, yeah, he did a great job. Uh, across all five of them, really. It, it, it is rare that like Wizards put something out with artwork and they the entire cycle is, is spot on. But this guy really did a great job. And... I think that both because they, the the grandeur and the appearance, these are so good, and they're unique in the sense that every other land art and magic is the same, roughly the same thing. These are and these are the only ones that aren't that. Well, there's also the Thero- bodes well for th- them. There's also the Theros, the Theros ones with their like giant mana, Pokemon mana symbols. But yeah, yeah, th- these, th- th- those I, are those I, are two, those are distinct as well. But they're stupid for idiots. These are cool. <laughs> These are cool. And I mean, like, people are going to look at this and go, uh, isn't Travis in the Star Trek? Maybe that's why he's enjoying these. Like, fair. You're, but you're I giving do, them I, credit for even knowing you like Star Trek, but sure. Well, I actually did. I don't know if you caught this. The My most popular tweet ever I posted yesterday, and it's a Star Trek tweet. It's got 6,000 likes. Oh, wow. Uh, that's quite a lot. Uh, it is a lot. And it's not even mine. I stole an image from a Discord because I thought it was funny, and it blew up. So I get no personal gratification out of it. But the point is, is I, I know that basic lands are done to death and they're very rarely that appealing. However, we do occasionally see them pop up like the Godzilla lands and some of the other ones from the secret layers. And these in particular are pretty interesting. I could see these being one of the few basic land sets that kind of tri- rises above the chaff. Well, here's the other thing. The orbital ones have galaxy foil versions. Hmm. So I didn't catch that. if the galaxy foiling looks good, these are the ones you want it on because they are fantastic images of things in space. So it works there. Uh, so let's see how they look. Uh, but I could very easily see foils of these ending up being worth money given the set they are coming out of. If this set undersells, and I think that it's planned as a set that's going to be mediocre in sales and they're trying to juice that with this stuff, it will juice sales to an extent, but only to an extent. There's still going to be plenty of players who just go after the singles they want. 
um, out of this and ignore the rest of it because they've been burned before on buying oh. unproduct and they didn't like it. But hold on, that okay? So that reminded me of the other point I wanted to make. I there I would have to imagine that there are a lot of players who dabble in CBs and draft booster product in non unsets that are going to pass this by because they're going to go, oh, I mostly don't care about this. The There's only going to be a very small handful of EDH cards in there that I want. I will buy a couple of the singles, and they may underappreciate how rare some of these lands, both the shocks and the basics, end up being. And I would not be surprised if this set sells way less product than it it probably should because most a lot of people don't appreciate the rarity of some of the stuff that's in here. So even if all of us know that this the numbers end up working out to make this stuff really expensive and that they're worth buying, the greater magic community may miss that. The other thing worth flagging is that unlike something like training grounds, like the EDH specific duels, um or the Tri-Lands from Ikoria, which were widely underestimated in terms of their potential for Modern when they first came out. No one, like, there's no regional disparity in terms of who wants shocks. <laughs> so don't don't expect fantastic deals in Japan or Europe on this shit. Um, I mean, on the EDH-specific cards, surely, yes. But on the, the Borderless Foil, Galaxy Foil Watery Graves, nah. There, I could see them being these things being posted once people do the math at anywhere from 150 to 250 for the Galaxy Foil versions of the shocks out the gate, and then it'll just be about how much market pressure pushes them down. And you're right, like if if lots of vendors, LGSs, and armchair speculators dodge the sealed product and go after the singles, it pushes the singles up that much faster because you've got all this demand but you don't have supply and that's kind of how that whole intersection of curves works is if you have way more supply way less supply than demand that in terms of cracked on opening weekend then you're going to see prices move fast i i will tell you that to date the only collector boosters i have bought were theros beyond death uh that was disappointing yeah well i mean that that would be compared to some of your other options Mm -hmm. i bought i am closer to the cbs on this Oh, wow. or the draft boosters than most of the other product because I these I I have a gut feeling on these lands and I think they're going to get slapped on hard. I, I would imagine that this this product will probably not sell tremendously well in Europe in sealed form. Uh, but I would imagine the single like the key singles that actually matter for Europe, the shocks in particular, are going to move pretty quickly, pretty briskly as a result of that. But then that probably means there will be pallets of the CB sitting around, and I would imagine we'll be able to drive a, a pretty hard bargain on them for a group buy. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would pre-order the CBs. It's gonna have, it's gonna have to be a tempting price. Yeah, it would be, be just because of the like maybe I can catch a, a much better deal, you know, whatever three months later. Um, but yeah, I got to tell you, the, the, some a handful of cards in here that seem like they could be extremely attractive mixed in with a bunch of other cards that mostly nobody cares about it's got high price tags written all over it if galaxy foil shocks end up down the road as 50 to 100 dollar items 
50 to 150 maybe on some of the higher ones like steam vents or whatever then the cbs are less dangerous um and they and they're going to have some galaxy foil basics that look pretty good they're going to have a handful of edh cards that probably run five to ten dollars and then could end up like jumpstart where the really good the best of the best of the edh cards that comes out of this again if it's under opened are going to spike pretty hard pretty fast and you know the I, I doubt they're going to be auto wins in the same way that MH2 CBs can often feel like auto wins, but they might end up being better than most standard sets. I'm, I'm going to go... All right, so I'm going to ask you a question. Let's assume that the Galaxy Foil is very good. Not, like, astounding, but definitely at least competitive with normal foils. What do you think the... We're gonna say we're gonna say generally more appealing than the than the normal foiling. What do you think the price on Galaxy Foil Godless Shrine is at the end of next year? This time next year. Well, let's see. I I would I thought retro foil fetches under a hundred were gonna be an auto buy, and they've gotten down as low as 65, 70, 75, depending on which one we're talking about out of the top three. And these are shocks, which are arguably about the same total demand profile the expectation is probably that you're looking at if supply on this is lower than mh2 which i think is definitely true um, and it's under opened by comparison which i also think is definitely true then these could these could be 100 to 150 dollar cards for the key ones yeah, I don't, so, I don't, I don't know if that's in three months, six months, or two years because I don't, don't have enough specifics yet. But the, yeah, they, they can get there if they look great. So I was thinking, if they're one I, every two I, boxes. Yeah, I want to say my 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 guess here is, without any extra info, Galaxy Foil, like Godless Shrine and Sacred Foundry, which are I think two of the best arts, but also two of the least popular shocks land in like the 130 ish range and i mean i could i could see how it found one at 250 like keep in mind you I need really you could. basically need 35 to 40 cbs of crimson vow to find a sorum the mirthless foil kojima so these are not that rare but they're but they're still pretty rare they're not that rare but the demand profile i is like with multiple magnitudes greater and and, and we're also ta- and, and, and we're also comparing not that rare in terms of to find one out of ten right like any one of them takes 20 boxes so they're about half as rare as a sorum i i i really wonder how many play sets of galaxy foil hallowed fountains will even exist if it's one because they said what is it one in every 24 packs one galaxy foil in every 24 one foil shock galaxy in every 24 packs so you need two boxes to find one you need 20 boxes to find all 10 so 20 cbs to find one galaxy of foil of each right but i'm, I'm just saying of, of one specific though so it's yeah. what, but if, if you're after hallowed fountains it takes you 20 cbs 
to hit that. Yes, yeah, so you're talking. I mean, see, you're talking about four grand retail worth of product at two hundred dollars a box. So how many? Uh, and so how many CBs get produced? I wonder. Do we know? Do we have a rough idea of how many CBs get printed? Yeah, I've I've run some of that math. Uh, I can bring it. Give me one second. And go back to the math I was using for Sorens. Let me just scroll back here. Yeah, so I had said, let's say that Vow, for instance, is an $80 million release across all products, plus or minus $40 million. 60% of those boxes are probably English, so $48 million or so of the revenue stream. You can say that CBs are like 20 to 30% of that revenue, so something around $10 million worth of CBs. Wholesale cost on CBs is like 160, so you have like 60,000 boxes. Uh, so you're landing on about 60,000 CBs for, for, for Crimson Vow. Six, yeah, for Crimson Vow. So let's say for this, there's two-thirds of that, half. so say 40,000 of them. Yeah, I was say half as much. So 40,000, and you Divided need... by 20. That's two thousand playsets of Hel- of Galaxy Foil. Two thousand copies, yeah. Two 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 thousand co- copies. Yep. So five hundred playsets. Yep. That is not a lot. <laughs> and and I don't think this is an eighty million dollar release. Uh. Uh. But mm. English boxes are a higher percentage. Are a hundred percent, not sixty percent. So my guess is there there is. Net net, you're probably talking somewhere between three and four thousand copies of each. Yeah, I I would anticipate that you know going from Crimson Vow to Infinity, you probably lose. You know, if 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 the total value, you know, if you estimated Crimson Vow eighty million, and we'll say in Infinity is twenty million, right? We'll say it's a quarter of those of much revenue. The percentage of that probably comes out heavily from like the non-CBs. So I would imagine they print the CBs at a much closer ratio than they do some of the other product, if that makes sense. Um, but regardless, I, that still seems like a pretty limited number of each of these, all things considered, especially when it's a card people could want, could theoretically want 10 copies of. Hmm. Real curious to see what those galaxy foils look like. Yep. Real curious. All right. Okay, now can, we've gone long enough. <laughs> where can people find you online, Travis? I'm at Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering in 2022 and beyond. <laughs> Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in match together in singles, skilled product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That is episode 301, only uh, 49 episodes, 48 episodes to go, and then we're on 350. Can't wait. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.